I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to introduce our guest today? Absolutely. We've got Earl on the phone today, Earl from Mississippi. And you guys are going to want to really stick around. He's got some very interesting information on these, uh, on the creatures and his uh, experience with them. Um, but before we continue, I just want to say, if you like the show, just click the like button and subscribe. And if you want to support us, uh, there's a link in the description. All right. So, Earl, how you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing good, sir. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. It's not 20 degrees here, so we're doing pretty good. <laughs> Imagine. I talked to a friend of mine a while ago. It's, it's 77 degrees where they're at in Florida. I'm like, well, don't call me till next week. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, so we, you know, we talked the other day, and I'm what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand the microphone off to you. Um, what I'd like to do is start off with, uh, we're just going to kind of go chronologically here. And you had an encounter as, uh, you know, going very early on as a, as a child. So fill us in with that and then just kind of, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about what's happened in your life with these creatures. Um, uh, well, that's been a long time ago. Uh, I'd say the first one was between me and my sister. Uh, up north Mississippi at my grandparents' house. Uh, I was probably, we was probably seven, eight, maybe 10 at the most. I, it's been so many years. We was young. Um, uh, it was a rural area. It's, you know, uh, gravel roads is still that way to this day. There's no blacktop roads up there on my land. Um, uh, he raised horses. Uh, you know, he had a big old Brahma bull. He raised fruit and vegetables. Of course, they, they was Native Americans, and that's that's how they lived. You know, they lived in that, that house for over 60, 70 years. And uh, me and my sister used to go up there on the summer. Uh, one week, one week out of every month in the summer to spend time with them. And uh, my grandpa uh, grew these big old green apples, these big old red apples. And uh, he always kept them in a Coca-Cola chute or box, whatever y'all call it uh behind that old barn and right right made into the side of a barn was a we called it a shoot house uh what it was it was like a lean to with a shoot he kept a bull in and uh there's a tree line about 20 30 yards to the right of that barn going forever they own almost four thousand acres down there and so me and my sister was down there one weekend and we decided uh papa was he was doing field work with the mules behind the house down there. So we decided we was going to go get some of them big old green apples. And we knew we wasn't supposed to go back there. So we went through the barbed wire pits and uh, 
across to the other end by the barn and uh there was a there's a big old oak tree in the middle of that in the middle of that field that fence in field that's where that's where grandpa used to uh tie his horses up and train them in the mules and stuff like that and so we decided to go down there and get them apples and we made it through the other side of the barn and something hit the corner of that barn toward the tree line and uh it was a, like a big old limb just fell out of the tree and hit the barn and of course it scared the crap out of us we thought it was grandpa you know and uh we seen a big old monkey well that's what we thought it was you know and we was already by the bull uh so we went ahead and it Got them apples coming back, and uh, we crawled up on the barbed wire and made it halfway to that tree, and somehow or another that bull got loose, and uh, it was a big old Brahma bull. I, you know, uh, hell, it, it looked like King Kong when we was kids. Uh, it's probably a 3,500-pound bull or bigger, and um, we've known it since we was young. As it, you know, we knew it was mean, and we never wasn't supposed to mess with it. We didn't, but. Uh, we made it halfway to that big old tree, that big old oak tree in the middle of that field, and that bull got loose, knocked the chute down, and um, I don't know if it was because he sensed what was there or what, because you know we didn't know nothing like that back then. And he come through that field, and me and my sister got behind that tree, and as soon as it got to that tree, uh, whatever that was that we thought was a monkey, uh, wasn't, <laughs> wasn't now. Um, it grabbed that bull by the horns and twisted his neck graveyard dead right behind that tree, right behind us. And we was just amazed. We was in shock. And my sister took off running and I just, and she got up under the barbed wire fence going toward the house and she cut her little legs like razor blades. And I just knew that was, I was never going to make it to my next birthday. Cause if grandpa seen that man and, and I turned around and looked, and he was already to between the pole barn and the tree line and whatever it was stopped and turned around and looked at me and just stood there for a good five or six seconds staring at us and turned around and walked off to the trees, went into the trees. And the only thing my grandpa said, uh, want to know we was all right. And he said, I told y'all not to go back there again. You know, I told y'all not to go there. And, Later on in life, uh, after my grandfather passed away, uh, my grandmother told us uh, they've been there forever. Uh, they everybody they knew about them. Nobody they didn't tell nobody because that's how old people are. You know, back then, back in them days, they didn't speak nothing about anything to anybody. And uh, Grandpa grew two rows of watermelons and two rows of cantaloupes, and he grew them apples. And that was for them. And that was like to respect their property. You know, this is y'all stay over there. We stay over here, and that's pretty much how it was. You know, and later on, uh, did let me add, Leonard. I'm gonna interrupt for a second. So, uh, Grandpa, your grandfather saw what happened. Did he ever talk to you guys and say, "All right, nope. because of what you did, you know, we we lost the bull or anything like that," or? My grandfather was more interested in uh, where that being went, and thank God nothing happened to us. He never mentioned the bull. He never said nothing about it. He just looked at it and went, huh. And that, that was pretty much And We're still waiting on that razor strap because he kept it on his porch. Um, <laughs> my 
like I said, my 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 grandfather, he he could just look at you and you cringe, you know. But uh, yeah, that's that's when we found out later on about it, and then uh, after all the years later, uh, of course he passed away, and then my grandmother passed away, and uh, I ended up with the with the property, uh, which is uh, like I said, it's almost four thousand acres, and um, the house is gone now. The old barn, the sheep barn, all that done collapsed, but the tree's still there. That big old oak tree's still there, and the fence is still there. Uh, what's left of that old rusty barbed wire fence? And we still, I still go back up there uh, from time to time, but it's about a four-hour ride for me to get back up there. But it's, you know, they still around. They still around there. No doubt. And uh, when my grandfather passed away, I might ought to tell you this. Uh, like I said, he grew watermelons and cantaloupes for him. And uh, it was about a week or two after he passed away, my grandmother kept seeing watermelons in front of her porch. So we believe they was putting watermelons in front of their house for respect for my grandfather. That's what we believe. Because... I, I don't know how long they've grew them for them, but I know it was a while, you know. And these watermelons would just appear out of, you know, nobody else could have done it. No no neighbors or anything like that. You guys didn't do it, so. No, they, they didn't have no neighbors for probably five or six miles around them. Yeah. It's nothing but hills and country up through there. Well, that is a absolutely fascinating story um but you've had that's not the only encounter you've had with these things no sir no sir that's that's not the only one i've had a couple i mean if you see one in your lifetime you're blessed um i've seen more than one i've i've yeah i've i've seen more than one uh me and my brother seen one uh i'm from louisiana uh and we we i can say this now he's he's dead and gone we used to poach alligators and john boats back in the swamp and uh we had a boatload of alligators one night and uh pulled up on the bank and my brother was a vietnam vet he was um yeah he was a sure enough ig joe guy you know you you didn't really my mom used to tell me don't go don't be in the woods with him at night and uh hell me and him got along good you know and uh we pulled up on the bank and he was sitting there. He rolled his own cigarettes, of course. And we said he rolled him a cigarette and he heard a cypress tree snap. And, uh, you know, in the swamp, you can hear anything for miles and miles. We didn't hear no, we didn't hear no mosquitoes. We didn't hear no bugs. We didn't hear no, you know, catalins. We didn't hear nothing. And that tree broke. And my brother uh, got in his little IG Joe sense and took off to my left. Well, I'm standing here with these alligators in this 16-foot John boat, uh, holding the boat with the rope. You know, well, I wasn't holding the boat. I was holding the rope and uh, waiting on him. And I kind of got a little squeamish. And uh, about five, ten minutes passed. And, I, you know, I, of course, you know, anybody from the swamp knows you don't call out for anybody. And uh, I'm standing there looking for him. And I'm looking to the left, and the next sound I heard was something splashing in the water on the back of the boat. And I turned around and looked, and, in the, and you could see him in the moonlight. You could see it. Man, it was 
that's the biggest thing I ever saw in my life. And, uh, yeah, I, I had nightmares about that forever. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's, it made one splash in the water and turned around at the end of the boat and stared at me. And then walked across the swamp. And now how he got behind me or how he stepped wherever he stepped without making any noise to this day, that haunts me. I have no idea how he done it, how it done that. Let me ask you uh, just real briefly. Can you describe, you say you saw it. What, what did you see? How big was it? Any coloration? Tell us a little bit about what you what you're looking at. Okay, I mean, uh, of course, all you have is the moon in the swamp. You know, uh, I can tell you it's black. I mean, like a shadow, but it could have been red. I mean, I don't know, but I can tell you this: we was in we was in four feet of water, and that come up to his knees almost a little bit past his knees when he stepped in that when he when I turned around. I can see just about from his kneecap up. Yeah. Yep. That's that's pretty big. That's very big. Yeah, exactly. If it four feet, you know, most people are gonna be, you know, past their waist. So this is a very large creature. Did it um did you get any sense of malevolence, the expression on its face or anything? It was up to something. Well, it's about where I was standing with the boat, for me, it is probably 18 feet from me in the dark with the moon on it. Uh, but when it turned its head over its left shoulder and stared at me, uh, I couldn't see its facial expression. But I got the sense that uh, it was PO'd, you know, it like we sh- we don't belong there. You know what I mean? Now. It could have been standing behind us the whole time. We would have never known, you know. I I didn't smell it, you know. Uh, I've smelt them before, uh, but but the only time I've ever smelt one was like I'm. Everybody's everybody has a different theory on these beings, man. I I don't think they're creatures. I call them beings, and um, uh, everybody has their own theory about it. You know what I mean? There's no expert in this field, but uh, the ones I've smelled and seen, there was juveniles around. There was every time I smelt that rank, ugh, that just rank smell that make you it just ugh. There's always a juvenile somewhere, you know. So I contribute that to the females. Yeah. You know? Well, that's an interesting thought. You know, I'm just gonna. I wonder. Now you had alligators that you had shot, and they were in the boat. I'm just curious if maybe the alligators were what attracted it. Uh, either that or, or uh, I wouldn't say the smell, of course. Either that or we was in its territory, you might say. We just, we showed up wherever it was at. I mean, you know what I mean? Right. In Louisiana and the swamps, man, they, they got all kinds of theories about all kinds of things. And I've, I've lived in the swamps my whole life. And I can tell you, man, it, I've seen stuff. And, I, you know, if you country, you know, country people, we just, yeah, well, we know better. I mean, because we grew up in the swamp. You know, everybody has their own fantasy and theory about it. But I, I don't know about 
it this uh it it's real it's i'm telling you it's real it's there i mean um i can tell you a lot more personal experiences but uh man it's uh they real if anybody don't believe in these beings they they need to quit researching them they need to get off their armchair computer and get in the woods and go find out for itself you know well they, i couldn't agree with you more absolutely it's uh you're going to find a lot more creatures in the woods than you are on the internet. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're seeing more and more of them, and half the people are not reporting them because they can't actually believe what they're seeing. You know what I mean? They can't believe it because they think it's a folklore or legend or, yeah, it ain't no such thing. Okay, well, I can prove you wrong. I have scars all over my body to prove it. Okay. Um, I lost my brother to one of them. So I can tell you with my hand to God that they are real. Okay. And these people have no idea what they're dealing with. And, you know, they have no idea what, what it is. I mean, I mean, I follow them. I don't, them. I don't take a gun. I, I told a pistol when I go to do my little exploration, but I do it not for them. Of course, uh, I do it for snakes, stuff like that. That's the only reason I tell a weapon. Sure. Let me back up for a second, Earl. Um, so this is something new. You said your brother, you lost your brother to one of these creatures that killed him? Yes, sir. Tell us a little bit about that. What uh, what, what happened? I, I, I'd rather explain that to you off the air if you don't mind. It's just, um, okay. Yeah, no, you know, kind of personal, no offense, no offense. It's just, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I lost my brother and, uh, they found me two days later. So, yeah, but they, they, they're incredible beings. I'll follow them. I don't follow them to see one and take pictures of one. You know, I, like I said, I do it for a different reason than anybody else does. I, I do it. Because, you know, I want to know about them. You know, I want to know why. I want to know, you know, if you understand that. And I, you know, it's just after what happened. No, it's an intriguing subject. It absolutely is. Sir? And, uh, well, it's a very intriguing topic, uh, to say the least. Um, And I'm just going to say a quick comment. Uh, It's interesting that you mentioned the juveniles. Uh, that's when you smell them. Uh, that was uh, when I smelled one. It was near a juvenile. So this uh, interesting uh, corroborating information. All right. So let's move on. And what was, uh, tell us about your next encounter. Oh, uh, man. Uh, well, where I'm at now in South Mississippi, I mean, I, there's uh, probably almost 3,000 acres or more across the street from me. I live on a dead-end road, and so I'm not really in the city. I'm in a county. And, uh, you know, there's a river that runs through. It runs all through this state to other states. And uh, there's sandbars and uh, ponds. And uh, used to be a bunch of wild hogs back here about six or eight years ago. And all the hogs are gone now. And, uh, I've had, you know, there's, there's a skitter trail at the end of this dead end road 
they did back in the 60s, early 70s, one of the big, huge skitters. And uh, it's all grown up, but it's still a trail. We used to ride four-wheelers back there. And, uh, you, I mean, you can go for days if you know how to get to where you want to go. And, um, yeah, I, uh, I seen one back there. Uh, I got flanked with a rock one night, but that's another story. But there's, if you follow the skitter trail back there, uh, you get about a mile in and you look to your left, it's a sand creek. Uh, it's about 15, 20 feet straight down. And it's about 20, maybe 25 feet wide to the other side. And if, if at night, you can, if you don't know where it's at, you'll get killed if you run off down there in a four wheeler, you know, um, it's, it's not a full creek anymore. It's got big boulders and stuff in the bottom. There's probably about maybe a foot of water that runs through it at all times now. But uh, I was riding four wheelers down there one night. It was about three o'clock in the morning. And uh, they got a big field to the right. Right when you get to that is to the right hand side. It's, you can follow the, the wood lines like six feet beside of you. And you get to this clearing. And it clears off about 75, 80 yards to your right. And it goes for about 100 yards long. And it's nothing but that big, tall, like ryegrass, wheatgrass, whatever you call it. And so we always stopped there. And I stopped there to drink a beer and smoke a cigarette before I went on, you know, because I was going probably two more hours up through there to get down to the river bottom. Uh, and I, <clears throat> I was there one night and I heard something and it, I heard a noise I've never heard before back up in here. It was like a squeal with a moan at the same time. And I turned around and looked toward the tree line because you can see it through the moonlight. And I heard something coming at me. I'm like, oh, that's probably a wild hog, you know. And I kept looking, and it was a deer. And I was parked about two feet right by that creek bank going in. And this buck leaped. At, he come out of nowhere, full stride, and he leaped and jumped over me and my four-wheeler over this creek bank, and I turned around and looked, shined a light on him, and he was pouring wet with sweat. He looked like a horse that had been run forever, you know? And I'm like, my God, because, I, you know, I could understand if a doe was like that around here, but a, a buck? And I turned back around, and you, you could, I heard a, a moan, a deep growling moan. And you could see the beginning of the tree line moving. I'm talking about the tree line, you know, moving. And whatever this was, it was coming so hard, it sounded like he was hitting the ground with a sledgehammer. I mean, it was just vibrating. I was like, boom, boom. I'm like, my God. And you could see the wheat field grass. You know, it's 8, 10 feet high. And you can see it moving back and forth. And it got to the edge. It got to about 10 yards from me. And it stopped. And I just cranked my little four-wheeler up and turned around and come right on back out of that field. You know, <clears throat> went back. I went back the next day in the afternoon. I found three prints in about 70 yards. That was it. You know, just three. But it, it was in full motion. I mean, you could feel it on the four-wheeler. It was hitting the ground so hard. 
and you, and it was obviously chasing this this buck. Evidently, I run his dinner. That's what I come to, you know. Um, that's just one story. Uh, I I have there's juveniles here. Uh, I can send you pictures, man. They they everywhere around here. They leave me gifts. Um, I get I used to get dead deer legs. I mean, well, of course they did, but I get deer legs like just snapped off. I used to get them in a a circle uh, in my front yard for a while, and I quit getting them. Then I started getting these flowers they call trumpet flowers. And uh, I don't have a flower tree in my yard or nowhere around here. There's nowhere there's nowhere around here in 20, 30 miles or more that has these flowers that I know of. And I don't know where they keep getting them. I don't know where they come from, to be honest with you. But they're leaving on my bottom doorstep. And uh, so that's that's I'm still trying to figure that out. That was about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, I can see any pictures of my white truck. I got a handprints where they hit my truck. Uh, they smeared the handprints all down my truck, all over the hood, the side, and left some kind of bush, uh, some kind of green bush thing on the hood. I don't know what that means. Um, but that's juveniles. You know, uh, they used to slap the back of my house where my bedroom is about three o'clock in the morning. You know, that they just want to play. They let me know they're here. I mean, if they wanted to hurt me, they'd hurt me. Um, you know, they this tree breaks. Uh, I sat out here on my front porch tonight with the light off, and they man, it, you can hear them. I've recorded several, several of them. Uh, the last one I recorded, it sounds like you listen to a cassette tape in fast forward motion, if you know what I'm saying. That's the best way to describe it. And Oh, that, that kind of jabbering sound. You know, like you fast forward in the song. Yep, yep, sure. Yeah, so I got that, and then uh, yeah, got, absolutely. Send us the pictures, and if you're if you're able to send us the audio, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, I'd love to. You know, you don't tell nobody right here about them; they think you're crazy. You know what I mean? So, no, I understand. Uh, yeah. That's that's that seems to be a common thread anywhere where where bigfoot is and it doesn't make a lot of sense because you're encountering them you're seeing them and you'd expect more people to be aware of them but that's not that's not always that's rarely the case on this road i live on this dead end road i got one two one two i think the other one done moved out but i got two neighbors that's been here longer than me and that's a, you know, I've been here for a while and I've asked them about them, especially I got two old people live next door to me, bless their heart. And, uh, you know, they don't come out at night. You know, they don't, I've asked them, I said, man, is what, you know, they, they just won't talk to me about nothing. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, and they kind of like slam the door in your face, you know, I'm like, okay, well, sorry to bother you. You know, I just want to know, <laughs> you know, but, uh, yeah, they, no, nah, it's too bad. Uh, they know, you know, everybody knows. I the guy I work I used to work for, um, the house I bought, um, he grew up here as a kid. He was a baby and grew up in this house. And he told me, uh, I can get his testimony and send it to you. And he told me, he said, Man, 
do you go in the woods across the street? I'm like, well, yeah, I ride my four wheel over there. He said, man, right across from the street, right across the street from you when me and my brother, he said, we was about 12 or 13 years old, man. We was about 70 yards across the street from you. And we run into something and he said, we don't know what it was. He said, but it was standing up on two legs. And he said it roared so loud, it vibrated their insides that they fell to the ground. And his other brother, his brother started crying and he grabbed his brother and both of them took off. And he said, because he said, I'm telling you, there's something over there. I said, oh, well, I already know that. Shoot. You know, I started, I got footprints of them, man. You know, I mean, I, I got all kinds of stuff of them over here, but. Yeah, yeah, he collaborated what I already thought. He, he was telling me what I already knew, you know. He acted like he didn't want to talk about it, you know. But I got a buddy of mine that lives about 30 miles from here. I'm following five counties where I'm at now. Uh, I do it alone. I don't take nobody with me. Uh, I'll send you a picture of a pickup truck, and I'll tell you why. Uh, well, you'll see why. Uh, if you ever break your trust, that it's over with, you know, you'll never get their trust back. I don't take no, like I said, I don't take no big rifles or nothing with me. I don't take no guns. Uh, I, I go alone. Uh, it takes a while for them to get, if, if they know you or if they sense you or smell you, I would think it, it takes a while for them to get used to that. You know, if you bring something new in with you, it, it, it changes their course of activity. You know what I mean? I found that after about 40 years, you know, yeah, you don't take nobody with you, but he's got a lot of land where he lives about 300 acres. And, uh, he told me, he called me one night and he thought I was crazy. Cause he knows, you know, I, I've been following these beings for, for a long time. And he said, Earl, I got something I want to tell you. Don't think I'm crazy. I'm like, what you got? He said, I was in my tree stand deer hunting. And he had an old man deer stand, you know, uh, I think he said it was eight or 10 feet up in the, up in the tree or 10 or 12 feet. It's been three or four years now. I can't remember. And he said, man, something grabbed my leg and jerked me down trying to get me out of that tree stand. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, I swear, man, I'm not crazy. He said it was about six fifteen, six thirty in the morning. And he said, come over here. Get my deer stand out of the tree, man. He said, go get my gun. He dropped his rifle and everything. He took off running. And that's not like him because he's been hunting his whole life, you know. And uh, so I went over there. I thought he was just crapping around with me. And I went over there, and we got to the woods. And I said, well, where's your tree stand at? He said, it's about 50 yards. He wouldn't get out of my truck. He locked the doors and had a pistol in his hand. I'm like, damn, something must be really wrong. And I walked back there, and that tree stand looked like a pretzel on the bottom, just about twisted. I mean, whatever grabbed that tree stand just twisted the legs on the bottom of it. Like, how high up is this tree stand? Sir? How how high is the tree stand? Probably 10, 12 feet. Okay. And is it is it wood, or is it aluminum, or what's what's the material made of? Oh, man, tree is a – yeah, it was a – I guess it was aluminum, pop metal, aluminum. You know, one of them folding kind. Yeah. 
And so this thing had something had twisted it around, bent the and when it grabbed his leg, it twisted the stand. You know, and he he pulled. He said, "I pulled my leg." I would say when I jumped up, I dropped my rifle and I looked down. I didn't see nothing. I'm like, man, you had to see something, bro. Was you drinking? He said, "Hell no, I wasn't drinking." I said, "Man, you dropped your damn gun." You know, he said, yeah, "Man, look, I'm telling you." And when he finally, he said, "I wet myself, Earl." He said, "Don't laugh." I said, "Well, I wouldn't laugh. It scared the hell out of me too, man." You know, and uh. He said he got down there that stand. That was it. He, he never went back. And he's hunted all his life and sold every gun he owned. Matter of fact, I bought two of his best guns from him. You know, he, he won't How go back. How long ago did this happen? Did this happen? This was about a year and a half ago. Okay. So about, fairly recent. About 60 miles from where I live. Do you stay in contact with this guy? Oh, yeah. All the time. All the time. Whenever he works, he works offshore. So whenever he's in town, you know, he calls me. Make sure I'm still alive. <laughs> you know, I said, I'm fine, man. You know, but yeah. And I went back, I went back up there, uh, probably shoot, probably three or four months after that. And, um, yeah, I, we found, yeah, that's why I told you about the dog. And uh, his dog was ripped in half. Uh, and on down the other end of the pasture, where the tree line starts, where that field is, the donkey was just shredded. Something just tore into it. And I asked him, I said, man, you sure you don't have bobcats down here or nothing, you know? He said, I'm telling you, man, I don't know what's going on here, you know? I'm like, well... Huh. Now, did you see the dog and the donkey? Two pictures of it, yeah. Okay. And th did it look like, I guess what I'm going at here is, were there any claw marks or was it just like picked up and torn like asunder? It in half. I'm sorry, say again? I said it looked like you grabbed it and just ripped it in half. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. The front wow. piece here and the back piece is over there. And I seen that, and, I'm, and I knew. I, I knew automatically, you know. Of course, I knew when I seen the tree stand what it was, you know. But uh, I seen that, I'm like, that's a territorial. That's territorial there. It is, you know. Yep. Yep. But uh, I ain't been back over there in a while. Like I said, I'm, I just, I'm, I'm following too many things by myself, you know. Um. I went back over here on the other end of my property. Well, it's not my property, but where I'm at now. Um, and I, I seen a juvenile and me following these beings for so many years, I, I, I messed my own self. I screwed my own self because I knew better. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I, I know what to do and not to do. And, but for some reason, when I seen this juvenile jump up and run, I've been following it for about quarter of a mile, half a mile. And I finally seen it get up and it stood up and stared at me and, and just took off. And as soon as I stood up to run, I got flanked with a rock in the back of my head. And um, I got 12 stitches right there. And I forgot about the day watchers, you know, 
I forgot all about the day watchers. Because if you see one, there's four or five more all around you. You have no idea. They, they don't go. They always travel in tribes. They always travel in tribes. I got one across the street now, and it's solid black. And I heard him scream the other night, and I got my camera. I got my pull my phone out when I was walking my dog. And I shined my light, and he gave me eye shine. And I started snapping pictures. And I took three pictures within five seconds. And his eyes up against a tree, his eyes 15 yards, or not 15 yards, about five yards away. And then the next picture is gone. And it's all in the same tree. You can see all three pictures. It's the same thing. You know, the eye shine moved and it's gone. You know. It's, it's pretty interesting around here. Yeah, it sounds like it. And um, this happened just the other night, you said? Uh, it happened about, uh, let's see, this is Friday. I think it was Monday night. What, if anything, uh, did your dog react to this, to any of this? He took tail. Uh, I, I got a Rottweiler. And then I got a bulldog, a, uh, a pit bull, and the I, I didn't. The pit bull was inside, and the my Roddy, he he looked like a little girl, man. No offense to you members. I mean, he tucked his tail, his nub, and he just screaming, whining, and just yeah, that was it. He was ready to go. He yeah, that was it. You know, and he's 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 a good sized dog, you know. Yeah, oh yeah, they're big dogs. He didn't want nothing to do with it. He want he, he wanted to leave. He wanted to leave now, you know. So you took pictures, you got three good pictures of eye shine. How how high up do you think the eye shine was? Uh I would say three feet. You see, I heard a, uh, I, we heard, I heard a tree break when I was walking him that night. And from my front door to the tree line across the street, it's probably 70 yards, maybe, maybe. And um, I heard a huge tree break. I'm like, okay. And I know at night I didn't have my flashlight on me, you know. So I just turned around and started taking pictures where I heard the sound. And when I clicked the first picture with my, on my phone, my automatic camera light come on, and I seen the yellow eye shine, and I just started clicking. Now you're saying that the eye shine was about three feet off the ground. It was three, yeah, about three feet. But the second one, you can see it rose up a little bit, and the third one, it was gone. Okay, so you're thinking, or I should ask, do you think it was crouching if it's three yeah. feet off the ground? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. They. He was, they, you know, they do the, they do a uh, crawl like a spider or whatever you call it, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. He was, yeah. He was watching me. He was, he was there the whole time. Ain't no doubt. So, what is your, how do you, how do you deal with this? You know, if you're, I mean, I, I don't think it would be the, the. Um, most comfortable thing to be out walking your dog, knowing that these things are. 70 yards away or less. Uh, well, um, like I said, there's a lot of things I can tell you off the air. 
Um, I'm not afraid of them. I'm not, I respect them. You know, I, I'm not afraid of them. <clears throat> I, I think they like, to me, they're kind of like a dog. They can sense if you're going to harm them or not. You know, I mean, I've, I've been places and I, I, I've, I've seen stuff, man, the, the back, the hair on the back of your neck to stand up, you know, and I know they there, but I, I'm not going to leave, you know, I, I mean, I've been hit with tree limbs, uh, rocks, you know, but I'll go back. I'll still go back, you know, and that, that lets them know, you know, I, Hey, I'm here. I'm not afraid of you. I have no weapons on me and they know what a gun is. Believe me, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, they know I don't mean them no harm, you know, because, I mean, let's face it, they could kill you if they wanted to. I mean, come on. They could rip your front door off your house. I mean, you know. I mean, I, I oh, that that's absolutely true. Uh, that's, um, yeah, you, you wouldn't stand a chance. That's one of those things. You know, you, you couldn't carry a gun big enough to kill one of these. I mean, you know. I mean, and the only thing, if you, if you shoot one, you'd never make it out, you know? But I, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that. After all, you know, ain't no way. Ain't no way. Cause there's no, all- I, I, yeah, I agree. I would, you, you'd provoke the whole group. Oh, yeah. Um, do you have any more stories or encounters that you've had with these? Uh, yeah, we was fishing uh, up in the Delta, and uh, they— you know, that's, that's a eerie place where we go. And, um, uh, we was down there catfishing one day and, um, uh, it was off of a logging trail road would enter the Mississippi river forks out. And, uh, man, we've caught catfish there before, you know, 20, 30 pounds or more a piece. And we went down there one weekend, me and my, me and my buddy Roy, and, um, uh, he's dead now, of course, but, uh, Anyway, we went down there and we done caught three or four, five, six ones. I mean, nice ones, you know, 18, 20, 20 something pounds. We just sitting there drinking a six pack and uh, he seen something across the river. He said, man, look at that bear. And I'm like, where? He said, right there. And it looked, uh, you know, because it looked like a big black bear over there. And uh, when it stood up like a bear does, you know. I'm like, wow, that's pretty big. Look at the shoulders. And then it stood up again. And I'm like, uh, that ain't no bear, man. And it let out this roar, this, oh my God, this, I've never heard, I've never heard nothing like that before. And, uh, so we just left. We said, that's it, you know? And there was another one on this side of us behind us. And we started walking to my truck. My truck was probably 100 yards, 150 yards. And you could hear it moving through the trees. You know what I mean? And the it seemed like the faster we started running, the faster you could hear it running. And there's nothing but like thorn bushes and shit like that on that side. And it was just, it didn't stop. And we finally stopped about, I don't know, 60 yards from my truck. I can barely see my truck about 60 yards. We finally seen the tailgate and we turned around and looked and it wasn't one. It was two of them. And we dropped the catfish, man. We dropped the fishing pole. We dropped everything and got to the truck and 
we cranked the truck up and took off. And I looked in my rear view mirror, and there was one probably mm, 50 yards behind my truck. I don't know where the other one was. But he was dead center in the middle of that road and right behind my truck. So we never, I never went there again. I, I haven't been there to this day. You know, no way I'll go back to that. I mean, oh, and, and did you, and so you left the, the catfish behind, right? Oh man, when we seen them, to, shoot, we dropped everything. You know, <laughs> I mean, so they got a meal out of this. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. They could have had more than a meal. I mean, you know, when we turn around and looked. And it's, you know, it it looked like a man. You know what I'm saying? It it looked like a man. It it, it didn't look like nothing ever. It looked like a man. You know, best way I can tell you, it, it looked like a man. Right. But how would how would it? I mean, the physiology is similar to a, a man, but was the size the same? No, no. The face, the facial structure. I mean, it was just, it looked like a man. But the shoulders and the size of this thing, it, was, it, it wasn't it was a man. It, there's no way. There's no way it was a man. You know, there's no way. Nope. Uh, I I knew what it was when it let out that squeal, you know, that, that roar. I, I knew exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, and I'm, there's probably some more behind it, you know. Well, and that's the, uh, yeah, that's the part that's even, you know, seeing one of these things is unnerving. Know that knowing that there's a whole group of them around there, that's uh, that's that's even more so. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, they everywhere, you know. Like I like I told somebody else, man. I'm like, you know, the, you're gonna keep seeing more and more of them because you know the government is forcing their hand. The land developers are taking their land. They're forcing their hand out. You know, y'all taking their homes away from them like y'all did the Indians. You know, y'all forcing their hand. That's their home. You know, y'all tearing all the y'all cutting the timber and the trees. <clears throat> y'all forcing their hand. You know. That's why lately you hearing more and more about the about the sightings and all. I mean, you taking their home to build stores and convenience stores and apartment buildings. I mean, come on, that's you know. Yeah, I, that, that would that would very understandable. Well, listen, well, I think we're running a little short on time. Um, I want to thank you, Earl, and if you would st- stick around, and we'll talk to you a little bit about uh, some of the other things that you didn't want to uh, record on this episode yes sir well thank you for having me hope i wasn't a bore to y'all not at all always good to hear uh, interesting stories and earl is good talking to you you too sir all right in bigfoot history northern california bluff creek road August 27, 1958. Jerry Crew gave this as the first date on which Bigfoot prints showed up on the new road under construction, about 20 miles north of the Klamath River, in the valley of Bluff Creek in 1958. There is no record of when or how often the tracks were seen, but the men on the job had the impression that whatever, 
was making them was coming by on a regular route from northwest to southwest about one night a week. Sometimes, but not always, it would walk close by the road building machinery. Bluff Creek flows south out of Del Norte County into the Klamath about four miles above its junction with the Trinity. It is in a country of rounded, heavily timbered ridges with a few mountains reaching 5,000 feet. Well, folks, we're going to do something a little bit different starting this week. Uh, we're going to try to make things more uh, easy for our listeners, give more options to you folks. So what we're going to do is on Saturday, we're still going to have the three-hour show like we usually do. But we're going to break up some of these components uh, and offer them at different times throughout the week. I'll probably post all three options today, but starting next week, we'll kind of mix it up a little bit. So having said that, uh, this is the Q&A segment, and for those who listen to the regular weekly show, you know what that is. It comes after the interview, but what we're going to do is we're going to offer the first hour separately, and we're going to offer this segment separately so that for the folks who only have time to listen for an hour, this is available for you folks, and like I said, we're still going to do the three-hour option for the people who want the three-hour show. So having said that, fellas, uh, I guess we can jump right into the Q&A, unless you have something, Tom, you want to bring up. Absolutely. Uh, I just want to thank everybody for listening, and if you like the show, uh, let us know. Just click the like button and subscribe, and then if you want to support us, you can do that. There's a link in the description. All right, so our first question comes from Sharon in Belgium. Thank you, Sharon. Um, glad we're making it out there. Okay, so Sharon has a question, and she likes the show. She says, the man that claimed to wear the supposed false suit of Patty, did he at any time reenact the walk of Patty, and did did he show how he managed the walk the way that no other human has ever been able to duplicate? And I, real quick, I just want to say, you know, we get a lot of questions on you know, whether Patty was legit, you know, whether the PNG film was legit or not. But this is one of the more specific questions, and I like it. This is uh, this is very good. So thank you, Sharon. Yeah, that was Bob Hieronymus. And I, as I recall from when we had uh, Bill Munns on the show, two uh, separate episodes, he talked about that a little bit. And his belief was, first of all, that there were a couple of different um, films, you know, in other words, Hieronymus saw the Patterson film, the PG film, thinking that was him in the suit being filmed when, uh, Patterson very likely made a different film showing Hieronymus and that film was never shown or, or found. But, um, anyways, you'd have to listen to that episode. I think that was, geez, I don't remember what episode that was. <laughs> we, we get so many, uh, anyway. So to answer the question, um, he, to my knowledge, he did. They did film him doing that walk, and I want to say they went to Bluff Creek to do it in that location, but I don't believe that he was able to replicate uh, what was in the film. 
Yeah, and I, w- I want to comment on that. There was there's been documentaries done on that very walk because the creatures walk with this gate where the footsteps are what's called registered footsteps. It's one in front of the other, and humans walk with them side by side. So you can't, you know, it'd be really virtually impossible, I would think, for a human to have a natural feel to be able to do, especially in that rough terrain. Um, And this is, like you said, this is something that Bill Munns had addressed, as well as the fact that the suit itself, uh, you know, at the time, I don't know about today's technology, but back then there was no way to create a suit like that. Yeah, exactly. So, again, I would I would refer uh, listeners to, you know, check out the um, the interviews we did with Bill. Sorry, I'm going to try to They're- locate the numbers here real quickly so if I can reference those. So, um, boy, I can't believe we've had so many of these since we did, Bill. The weeks cruise by, folks. They do. Um the uh, the Bill Munns as uh, it starts on episode thirty four and 34. it's a yeah thirty four and thirty five are excellent shows ah yes here we are yeah for those who don't know for new listeners you know go to my YouTube page just William Jebding or you can look up Creek Devil and go down the list to episodes thirty four and thirty five that's Bill Munns and he did a really excellent job talking about the PG film and everything that was surrounded that and about because Bill was a Hollywood suit maker for movies. Yeah, he had a really good, he did a very, uh, actually a very in-depth scientific um, analysis of, he wrote a book on it. So, um, yeah, we can plug his book. It's called When Roger Met Patty by Bill Munns. Yes. Uh, Very good book. Excellent book. So, Sharon, thank you. That's uh, now those are that is very very good question. Milo, what have you got in the way of questions? Well, I've got uh, one that was really interested. Is back in your early uh, broadcast, you you spoke of a, like a five phase uh, investigation thing when you're out in the when you confront one of these or one comes across you, and it, it really struck with me because. I listened to that and it was like the first phase is like recognition and then and then uh you had like a uh some kind of philosophy that went with it and I just wanted you to find out when I ask you is uh did you uh enhance any of that? If, uh, if that helps any. Did that I, I forgot where I put my <laughs> That was the, we used that, um, you know, Adam made, Adam's made, Adam's our, our Hollywood guy, he's a filmmaker, and he's really done a lot to help us, you know, produce things. He produced the, um, that intro for, it was a witness, when we called the show Witness of the Unknown. Yeah. And and I jotted that stuff down, and I'm trying to remember, um, I was using it for something, and I can't remember, I have so much stuff that I write down. Right, and especially now I'm working on my ninth book, so I have stuff all over the place on my desk. So um, I'm trying to remember exactly what those we talked about five phases. Right. 
I don't know. You know, I should be prepared with all this stuff <laughs> in front of me. Do you remember offhand, Milo, what the uh, what well, each I, one of those I, was? I wrote it all down, but I need notes to find out where I left my notes at. <laughs> <laughs> so, but how, I was really intrigued by it. I was like, wow, that is really, it's kind of like, remember the, the five, the salute in in the military when we do a, a, a patrol size activity location yes. and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, it was kind of like that. It, it was, was yeah. I, I kind know, of based yeah, it. Identifying it and then uh, your solutions for doing that. So I went from uh, recommendations to the end result. Right. That And that's kind of the way, you know, you sort of methodically go through these situations. Now it's whether you're interviewing a witness or if you're going to a field location, uh, there are specific steps that you can go through that'll, that'll help you um, to keep from missing important details. Yeah. Well, that's what I, because I just wanted, when I was listening to it, and then in the other shows, you kind of you kind of fade away from that. So it went to a whole different thing. But I know with all the field experience you have, it was like, well, I wonder if he, you know, uh, uh, enhanced it or changed things or found a better way of doing it. Well, what we did, we put that on the intro, and um, that was what Adam, how he put that together. And mm-hmm. people griped about the length of the intro. So what we did was we made a new intro. And we replaced it with what we currently use. Right. Well, I understand that. I was just, but from for being an investigator, that was some key stuff. That's what I was going at with that. You, you know, know what I know do. it was the intro, but what I'll do is I can put that into here. Um, I'll put that audio up here, folks. So you can hear that, and then. Uh, that's what we're referring to, and it's funny. I mean, you'd say, "Oh, well, that's that's what I use." I I don't think about these steps when I'm actually doing it. I've done this stuff for so long that it's just it's automatic, right? You know, I don't. Well, it's for the private, you know. It's for the the, the us laymen, <laughs> right? Right. Well, you know, when you go out there. I mean, it's. it's you don't want to have a, you know, a crappier pants moment at all. <laughs> what I tell people, you know, if you're going to go into an area and, and, and or to interview people, is if you can answer the questions who, what, when, where, how, and why, then you've pretty well covered all your bases. And what I did with that, uh, with those five phases was, oh, God, I'm trying to find the audio. What I did with that was basically... Um, I tried to articulate it a little bit better. You know, it's like whenever you're looking for something, you can never find it. <laughs> I know, right? That's why I have notes for notes for notes to find out where my other notes were. I was going to see then, if I could play it right now so we could, you know, maybe break it down a little bit. I just cannot find the doggone thing. I don't know if I moved it. Who knows? Yeah. That's a problem when you've done something for almost 50 years. Uh, you get a lot of stuff that is difficult to locate. Hmm. Well, 
I'll, I'll put it in here so that everyone can hear it just uh, in a moment, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and move on to the next question. Tom, what do you got? Okay, good. We have a question from Tony in Australia, and uh, excellent question. Tony says, hey, gents, great show. I often hear the term switchback being referenced on the show, and for us Australians, uh, what is, what's a switchback? Uh, that's easy enough. If you're going into mountainous country, especially, you know, what we have in the Pacific Northwest, uh, they don't build the roads just straight up a mountain. In other words, they have to kind of follow the contours going up. And, and oftentimes, uh, let's say you'll be, you know, it just depends on kind of the lay of the land. Yeah, sometimes to get up a slope or up a ridge, you know, the road has to go up a ways then it'll curve around and then curve back and sort of a almost like a snake you know sort of a um, appearance you know going back and forth so a switchback is like you'll be on a lower level of the road and then the next segment is directly above you but it's it's where it's looped back around and hopefully and hopefully that's clear yeah, <laughs> yeah well one way of looking at it is you're going up the mountain okay so you're climbing up the mountain and let's say you're headed east and then you hit this curve and it's going and west <laughs> it, yes it's going west not quite 180 degrees but maybe 150 160 degrees and then, pretty close sometimes yeah right and then again you hit the end of that and it's a curve and then you're going back so it and those are just called the switchbacks yeah it, it's just it's just how the road how the people who built the road got up to those higher elevations by following the contour Milo, what do you think? What have you got? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I was like listening to the other shows about um, uh, well, mostly the the uh, man, dude. I I'm kind of out of it. At, I've been looking at the map, so I'm sorry. Oh, no problem. You know, I'm going to try to play something here for a moment. And let, bear with me just a moment. But, uh, I was. Can you can you guys uh, hear that? Uh, nope. Okay, never mind then. Uh, it had hair all over its body other than the face itself. Hey, it was... Oh, man. There are, in fact, four different types of, uh, of, of this enormous creature. And, uh, That's bad. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I found I found the audio I was looking for, but it won't. Uh, I'll just I'll just have to put it into this uh, so you guys can hear it. Yeah, and it's you know, well, I just want to say that's a really good question. The uh, five phases uh, that was one that I never asked that question, and I often wondered because I would listen to it over and over again. Okay, what's phase one, two, three, four, and five? So, um, yeah, very good question. I'm going to jump in. I got a question here from Cody. And Cody says, he goes, I'm curious about your thoughts on how Sasquatch family groups treat disabled or infirm members. Do you think the family group takes care of them or do they just let them go the way of natural selection? Maybe they're able to draw Social Security disability. <laughs> I don't know that there's public assistance <laughs> for the creatures, but... That's Probably a really good not. question, Cody. Will, what are your what are your thoughts on that? You know, that's a good question. It's something I don't think anybody really knows. Uh, I've never heard 
I mean, we see tracks sometimes that have, you know, obvious disabilities. Like, and I'll yes. give an example. There's the, oh, excuse me, the tracks from, you know, the Bosberg line in 1970, where one of the feet is obviously deformed. It, they call it the cripple foot. And there were well over a thousand tracks that DeHinden found and um, with that same deformity in each foot. And these were tracks in snow. So they know it wasn't something that was manufactured because you'd see other people's footprints in the snow field, right? So that's one case that's a, a legitimate one. And there have been others. I mean, I have other casts that show some deformity in toes and things. As far as what the other creatures do with that member, I suppose either they survive or they don't. Um, you know, that's a good point, Will, because you take a look at all other creatures in the wild. And cats, for example can sustain considerable injury this goes for house cats as well as you know the bobcats and mountain lions mm -hmm. and their method of survival is to conceal is do not let it out <clears throat> so they they basically tough it out right and, right and i i imagine bears and other animals do it yeah i would think so i mean i don't think they probably will tend to them as best they can but um, I guess depends on the severity of the injury. Yeah. I saw a video a while back of a, uh, somebody who was being paced by a mountain lion and the guy's yelling at it and trying to get it to go away from him, but he's able to film it. And the mountain lion has this, it's like the size of a grapefruit. He has some sort of a lesion on the side <laughs> of his head, but still at it, still going for it. You know, fellows, let's back up just a minute. I did find where I had written um, these phases. Okay, the, f the first phase is the reconnaissance phase. And what we talked about with the reconnaissance phase is when you go to a location, you want to know about what's been going on in that area. Okay. Uh, you can walk in. A lot of people go to areas blind without knowing the history of the area. So you need context. Uh oh, well, I don't know what that noise was, but <laughs> uh, you got to have context of what you're looking for. You have a, which context gives you a reason to look in a certain place as opposed to other places. You could go to lots and lots of cold places with no knowledge of the area, and maybe you'll find something, maybe you won't. But if you do your homework, do your reconnaissance, you'll have a better idea that there's a reason to look in that area. In other words, if it has a long history of activity, sightings, then you have a reasonable chance that you'll find something in that area. Uh, once you found a place where you'll see evidence, that's phase two. That's the collection and evaluation phase. So that's where you, you start looking at the evidence. You collect it. You need to document it properly. Uh, and I outline that in my book, Bigfoot Fieldwork 101. And you start evaluating it to see if that's something that's a regular behavior, if it's a new behavior. Is it a consistent behavior that's going on in this place as opposed to other places? Uh, then there's phase three, that's the tracking phase. Now, what I mean by tracking isn't, you know, and I've told people, people get this confused because they don't pay attention. Uh, when I tracked that group of creatures for 12 years in southern Washington, didn't mean I was out following them around, you know, following miles of tracks. What it meant was I was plotting on the map behaviors and where they were seen and what was going on and over time their behavioral patterns 
emerged. So that's what I mean by tracking. Tracking doesn't always mean just out there on foot looking at footprints. So that's what you want to do with phase three. Phase four is where you, you start photographing and documentation. And hopefully that's where you get the creatures. Um, that's both audio and, of course, photographic evidence. So and then, and then the, five, the fifth phase would be um, that's your final proof. So those are the five phases. I'm just going to comment, and then phase six is the, you know, there's the oohs and the ahs, and then there's the running and the screaming. Oh, I see. That's phase five. You know, <laughs> phase six is where you're in retirement or your lunch. Yes. <laughs> you know. But I got to say, Will, that's perfect for this next question from Danny. Danny has written us a number of times. Great questions, Danny. Thank you. Uh, and he's he's in the southern Sierras, so we know the creatures are out there. And I gotta say, that terrain is stunning. I love it. It's oh, yeah. the open, rocky, and then you get the pines and all that. It's beautiful country. Uh, a lot of they got a lot of mountain lions, a lot of bears, and just a lot of animals there. So he says he's camping in the mountains, and he wants to know what features to look for. Uh, you know, he's interested in finding one of these things. So, um, everybody wants I don't know to find that I'd one. do that. What's that? Everybody wants to find one. Everybody wants to find one. You really don't. No, you do up until the moment that you do, and then you don't. So, you see it looking at you. Um, but those five phases really apply. And I think what he's looking for is how do I go out? And find one of these things. Well, you need, and you need to I, do your homework first. And this goes back to my archaeology training. Because that's what you do with archaeological digs. Is you look at the history of an area. I mean, there are certain features in that, you know, um, field where, you know, it kind of gives you a little more narrow perspective of what to, where to look for things. But uh, do your homework. That's how you find where to go. Exactly. And listen, I hate to say it, uh, the hot spot that, Will, that you and I know about, um, I was specifically going to an area where I knew they weren't. So all that goes out the window. Um, and, and there they are. So sometimes, honestly, uh, at least in my case, luck played uh, a significant right. role in all but, this. But had you looked at the history, which does exist of that area, you'll see that they've been there for a long time. That's a real good point, and I did not do that. I just went to an area that I knew that they wouldn't be, and I was wrong. And lo and behold, there they were. There they were, in 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 buckets. Back to you, Milo. What do you got? Is he there? We didn't lose Milo, did we? I don't think so. Nope, he's there. <laughs> okay, Tom, go ahead and... Go on to the next question. Okay, well, this is one that goes to our last show, and this is on the Miller document. And so Alex wants to know, he says, there never was an H.A. Miller who went to Harvard Medical School, correct? That is correct, and yes. He says uh, his uncle and cousin are Harvard alumni. He says, I checked the Harvard Medical School graduating class uh, classes in the 1940s and guess what this guy wasn't there 
If you know anyone who's gone to Harvard, you can do the same thing, only by checking the alumni reports, and that, that is correct. Um, the See, fact that they're... That's, that's a good supporting piece of information when I said that my source had told me that that was, that was put out as partial misinformation or misdirection. Some of the information is correct. Much of it is not correct. That is, that is right. He says, the fact that there never was an H.A. Miller who graduated Harvard Med School invalidates the claims, the entire claims of the whole Miller document. And, it uh, does, yes. And, the, uh, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but the Celebidide, which mm-hmm. I just tried to do. I did. I'm sure I botched it. Uh, I thought you guys would like to know, rather than continue to promote this story, that's not that is easily checked to be false, but we, we mentioned that in the, in we that did, episode. Yes. Yeah, so if you want to go listen to the midweek show we did last week, that was Bigfoot in history. Uh, episode nine is where we discussed that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there, there are some pieces in it that are correct. Uh, and you know, my, my source, when we were talking about that, he said, well, go, he says, go through it, see which ones you think are correct and let me know. And, and I was correct on all of them. Um, but it's not really worth going through and picking and choosing right now because there's some things I, I will talk about, some things I won't talk about in that that I use for private usage. And I just want to say uh, he's he's got family that is Harvard alum. Well, not far from Harvard, I've got my family that is Yale alum. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's a that's a great piece where you know he brings it up and he did did his homework. And that's some of yes. the value of doing homework because it can really help, you know. And this subject isn't about supporting or tearing down, you know, the the, the people that are the believers or skeptics. Where it's not that at all. It's about sifting through what's out there to see what's real, what's not real, what do we keep, what do we throw out. Well, and you know, that's a good point because in this topic there is a lot of misinformation, and some of it is just coming from. Uh, fanciful ideas, and I think some of it may be intentional. It's but and there's being some people, able to sift through. And there's some people who just want attention, or they're brand new to this, so they keep dredging up the same old garbage, and it keeps making the rounds over and over and over again. So that creates a lot of confusion, especially to newer people to the subject, because they have no. Well, that's idea. a good point. Yeah, exactly. And you, you really have to invest a lot of time in the subject to begin to see trends. And a lot of the trends that you see are frankly fallacies. Mm -hmm. You know, it turns into a ball of light and then absorbs into the tree to get energy and comes out at nighttime as a Bigfoot. Um, That's an interesting story, good hypothesis. I just don't have any evidence for that. Yeah, exactly. And I was told that you know, Miller wasn't one person. He was actually five people. Yes, yes. So, you know, some, again, some of the information is real. Some, a lot of it's not. Yeah, so Alex, thank you. That was uh, a very good observation. You know, let me touch on something real quick since I have this in front of me. You know, we've had people who were kind of back and forth on, we, you know, we call the show Creek Devil and why we use the term Creek Devil. It's actually a Native American term from Northern California and uh, Bobby Short had this on her website. It was very interesting. 
So let me read this. Uh, California Yurok Indian terminology, also spelled Uma, that's U-M-A-H, and other variations symbolizing a hair-covered boss of the mountain, or in some instances, local creek devils that were once believed to poison streams in the Blue Creek region of the Siskiyou Wilderness in Northern California. Now, Blue Creek is the creek that's adjacent to Bluff Creek. And when John Green wrote his books, he talked in there about what, that Bluff Creek wasn't the focal point. Everyone back then knew that Bluff Creek was not the focal point, it's simply where they found things. Uh, it had the most, access, uh, the most accessibility by road, and that's where they were building the logging roads. You go over to Blue Creek, uh, and it's much less accessible, but the creatures were actually coming from that area uh, and would occasionally come through Bluff Creek. So uh, Uma'a also means a kind of sorcerer and his bundle of poison arrows. Uh, see, I mentioned which is the ancient usage as defined by the late Don Davis, who was once quoted as saying to Bobby Short, the Yurok and Hoopa Indians of Northern California had known for a very long time about the strange hairy man-like giants they called Oma'a. Uh, I think I mispronounced it, O-Oma'a. Anyway, um, this is my own spelling from verbal coaching of a Yurok friend. Incidentally, it is a Yurok Indian that probably should get credit for the quoted reaction when the first informed about white man's interest in Bigfoot by replying that it was interesting that the white man had finally gotten around to discovering this, late Don Davis. So that's that's where we use the name Creek Devil. It's an actually Native American term. So a quick question on Bluff Creek and then this other creek, it kind of parallels. <clears throat> what Do you have a kind of a rough idea how what the distance is uh, between those two creeks? Oh, it's not very far there. It's uh, it's just the next it's the next drainage system over to the west from Bluff Creek. Okay, it's not very far. Now, is it larger or smaller? Or do it's you about, have any it's idea? about the same. About the same. In okay. fact, there was one of the creeks called Notice Creek had a lot of activity, and that comes from um, it sort of diagonals from uh, over towards Blue Creek towards Bluff Creek, and the, a lot of the creatures would come down uh, through that what's area. What's the date on this? What's that? What what year? What year for what? Um, for all that activity. Oh, that was during the late fifties through the sixties, okay. but it actually predated it quite a bit before there were roads and the locals knew about the creatures in there. Okay, okay. In fact, all the way back to when I interviewed Al Hodgson in two thousand five, uh, in the in, and I have that video on on the page, so. Uh, you can hear him talk about that when he came back from World War II. His brother, you know, said, "Hey, let's go, let's go find them apes or wh whatever the terminology was." And he says, "Nah, I don't want to go over there and mess around with that," <laughs> okay. because they'd, they'd heard the screaming for years, you know, from across the. Um, that's over by the Klamath River, so they would hear from that region, you know, these screams. Locals all knew about them, but there was no road access in there until the late 50s when they started getting some small logging contracts in there now how did they make the connection there must have been a little more uh knowledge there to make the I'm connection sure. i mean all around that area not just bluff creek <clears throat> but all around willow creek and that whole region you know for you know who knows how long there have been sightings and of course the native folks knew about them too yeah and they knew that the screams was not something else that was connected to the bigfoot right well, they Danny didn't have a, so, Go ahead. 
Uh, to me, it just sounds like they didn't put one and one together yet. You know, they until they actually saw one or well, nobody bought. knew. There I mean the word Bigfoot wasn't even coined until 1958, right? So nobody That's, really see, knew. You know. Yeah, and then you know, well, the native the Native Americans they were they had different names too. So no one ever put. It all it never correlated together, did it? Yeah, you know. Well, it's just like I like I just read that piece, you know, from Bobby Sight that, you know, the Iraq Indian terminology they called them boss of the mountain, or in some cases, creek devils. Mm-hmm. And and there were yeah. other names, Omaha, and some other names in that area. But well, Will, it's, it's always fascinated me that, you know, he said, "Well, let's go up and find them apes." Yeah, let's go. Let's go get them apes. Yeah, it's like really. So, how far back and just how how entrenched was this lore that everybody seemed to know about them apes in the Northern California mountains? Long time, long time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is this has been around for a while. And like we do on the midweek show, Bigfoot history. You know, we've talked about some things that go way way back in that region. Oh, absolutely. You know, from, and, from the 1880s and that region, and so. well, and it, it encompasses Southern Oregon, and you've got, you know, the story of the miners and all that. So, Oh, yeah. Well, most of that, they just caught everything a wild man or crazy person running through the woods. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, wild man is the term that I've used when contacting Native folks. And uh, like in Alaska, now they call it, um, I just trying to remember what the heck they, they oh they called the hairy man in alaska mm-hmm. and that's pretty universal up there you know with natives of course they have you know different names for it but that's generally when they're when they're talking to somebody outside of their um their groups that's what they refer to it as well and there's a there's another name uh, one of our team members <laughs> who's been on the show (laughs) okay we'll leave it at that that's a whole different thing (laughs) yes that's more of a personalized view right a little little bit of military vernacular there so milo do you got a question i know you've been doing some research well most of mine are looking at missing campers and stuff and then it just intrigues me to, to try to find old newspaper clippings like from uh well here's let me see i got one let's see uh the famous walola lake one mile south of this place is no sheet of ice and uh is, yeah let me get through here but they were talking this was like eight, 1883 mm-hmm. and, and they were uh, the uh, between the Camas Valley and the remote uh, was a molesting they, it sounded like they were uh, attacking like mill, mill stage back in the 1883 they were would bushwhack a uh, throwing four pound stones at mm-hmm. at these at the stage writers and stuff and they it was just weird that they would just call them 
or, or they they would say that they would see a wild man running through checking tree stumps the size of you know our bodies at these at these stages and they would actually have a a, a young boy <laughs> guarding the male so if anybody has to run at the, the young boy would be you know an order yeah i mean milo where did you read that that's an interesting because will well, that, that kind of makes I've, sense isn't it? it it would attack the stage coaches I it, it, uh, I've been looking at all these uh, news clippings and, and trying to find you know like old microfish because I can't find it anywhere else because as soon as I put something on on Google it doesn't come out the way I want it. What you got to do, Milo, is go to old go to libraries. That's where all them old articles that's end up. Exactly, that's where I've been going. Yeah, that's where those articles end up. They're not so much in the newspaper archives. They only keep things so long. And then they right. they send them over to uh, libraries, public libraries. So like the Library of Congress and stuff like that. No, no local libraries. Oh yeah, okay. I will have. Well, I think most of that's just local stuff. There, I don't think they carry stuff from. Yeah, sometimes you will, sure. And then you have yeah. to know well, you have to know what question to ask them. That's the difficult part because they weren't. You can't just go and say, "Oh, I need I need all your Bigfoot articles." If the word Bigfoot isn't part of them <laughs> articles, at, yeah, they, then it won't come up. They, no, no, they won't look yeah, crazy. It doesn't. I've done lots. It doesn't. I've done lots of this stuff online, and and you can get it. Uh, like for example, I got um, the, the copy of the original Jacko article from 1882, and and it's difficult to read because you know the print's not great, but I was able to obtain that and. Um, but it, you had, it, I think they called it a wild man in that one. So you were able to yeah, get it through what, that I one. Yeah, that's what just got done reading here. And this was happening. Oh, I don't know where the Willala Valley is, but it says Camus. And I assume that's, you know, a region that is in particular interest. Camus Valley, that's in southern Oregon, isn't it, Tom? Yes. Yeah, it is. Camus Valley is. In fact, if I recall right, that's not that far from Christmas Valley. Uh, and, and the lady we had on who talked about, you know, her her dad who shot the cre- the elk and then the creatures got it. Well, and we have a guy that I'm hoping he's going to be available. He's pretty busy, but he had right there in Camas Valley. He had uh, some encounters mm-hmm. with these creatures, and very very interesting. So that's a hot spot, and they're oddly enough they're not very friendly there either. But see again, we talk about that first phase is do your homework. You look at an area, go back and dig through the history, and you can see a long history in certain places of activity. And if there's been that history, the chances are pretty good there's still activity there. Well, and you know another thing, Will, you talked about doing the research. You've got your, and you have to do the work, you know, you got to do it, but there's uh, a lot of your counties will have historic museums, and you can go in there and check out. As a matter of fact, I contacted a historic museum way, way, way up in Northern California, and I talked to the curator, and I didn't tell her what I was after. I just sort of described, actually, it was a situation with the, um, you know, with the road grader and the, and the tire that got, was, ended up across the ravine, and she filled in the gap. She, oh, she said, Bigfoot, okay, and it was like, like we're talking about the 
you know, the daily price of pork bellies and beans. It was just very, oh, matter of fact. And uh, I thought that was interesting. And this was a, you know, just a very small uh, one-person historic museum. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing is centralized out there. I mean, you have to know what you're looking for. You have to use the right wording. But there is information out there. And and some of it, like I went back into John Green's books because he'll – he referenced some of the materials that he found. And you can go back, and if you know the area, you can contact the libraries in that area. And if you have the article name, of course, then you can find it, or they can find it much easier. And it's not always free. They usually charge you a little a little fee for what they're doing. But <clears throat> depending on what you're doing with the material, it could be worth it. But the information is out there. Yeah. Well, that's like doing a MapriCon. I mean, you got to study your stuff. If you're going out there, you got to know your. What, what did we call it in the military when we have situational awareness? Mm-hmm. You know, right. you, it's everything. It's all encompassing. If you if you plan, you got to plan. You just can't go off half cocked and, and expect to survive out there. That was my oh, point. Oh yes, you can. That was my point with coming up with that first phase is you have to do you exactly. do your reconnaissance. Yeah. You have to do and that's what I was. I was a reconnaissance specialist. And you do uh, you do your homework. You find out because you only have so many so much time and resources to utilize. So I used to think, "Oh, how do I best?" Because you look at the areas and they're gigantic. I, and we talked about the Bluff Creek area, Northern California. That region up there is over a hundred thousand square miles of forest. Well, there's one of you, and you have X amount of time and money to spend doing this. Where do you go? It's a big question, right? So do right. Your, do your homework. You can you can narrow down the places to go, so you're not wasting, you know, who knows how much time and, and resources to go out and look. And when I said you can go a hundred times and not find anything, that's very true. That might even be in the same the place you've narrowed down to. Well, and I was being facetious, of course, when I said you don't have to be prepared. Absolutely. <laughs> um, just you know, military. Just navigating some of these areas is a real task. It is, uh, and your situational awareness you need to maintain that situational awareness and, while right. while you're out there. And I don't mean. You know, everybody's tied to their phones these days. You get in places like our area. They're in Oregon. We're working currently. You know, you get away from towns. There's no cell service. There's nothing up there. We couldn't even talk to each other in September. Remember, Tom? Right. Oh, yeah. In separate vehicles. We couldn't call each other. Yeah. So you can't rely on your phone. Get maps. You have to have paper maps. Yeah. Well, and the thing about a paper map is you get the bigger picture. Even if you're doing a seven and a half minute topo, it gives you the surrounding area, which gives you information about your area. It'll tell you about ravines and well, that's, valleys. That's the that map. Sort of yeah, that's yeah. the only map I'll I, use is a seven and a half minute series. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. I've been getting one over the regular military map I got. Yeah. Most of my areas. Well, that's about the that's about the scale we used in the military when, you know, when I yeah. first went in too. So it's it's to me it's the best one to use. Well, this discussion really ties in with Danny's uh, next question. You know, he's he's in the Southern Sierras, and he wants to know, you know, what can he use? What tricks? You know, like maybe a black thread between trees. I, I don't know about that. 
Um, you know, he's he's very interested in the topic, and I understand that. I want to say, and this is speaking from personal experience, Will, you and me and Milo, you can be right next to these things and completely unaware of their presence until they leave some evidence behind. Will, in your case, you walked through the trees, you saw them, but also the one that I found the most interesting was where you're looking at the tent mm-hmm. and one was three feet behind you and you didn't know it. Oh, yeah, Milo and I were there at the, at the Clark Ranch. Yeah. You know, it, if it wants to be seen, that's, you know, it goes back to one of the earlier shows that, you know, maybe they do that on purpose to, and, like, they send a young guy out and say, hey, you go act like a stupid ass out there while the rest of us observe, you know, and watch the humans react to you. Oh, that's a good point. That's, well, I, I you know, I've been trying to look at that, you know, if, the, if these are... If, for the most part, didn't you say they travel in groups? They're not like a rogue guy going out no, there unless they're gets... always they're always in groups. So you know, if you see one, there's like four watching you. I don't know. Most you likely. know that's sometimes they'll hunt individually, but they're not that far from the group. Right. That's been my thinking, or that's been my new my new way of thinking. It. It's like, well, if you see one, there's like five, four or five looking at you. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was your experience. Yeah, um, at Clark Ranch, wasn't it? I mean, they were they were all over the. It wasn't one that was walking around making the noise. There was a bunch of them. Well, you know, it's just that the fact that we saw the one, or me, I I, I should say it for myself, seeing that one, you know, I, it just made everything else, every sound that something made out there. It, it just amplified it. It's like, oh, you know, so jumping around like I was, you know, John Belushi in, in Animal House, side to side and not knowing which way to go. That's how I looked at that. It was crazy. I, I really, I, I am, there's no way we're in our element out there. You know, you know it's like. I, I was swimming with sharks. I was emailed recently about that situation and you know why we didn't go back after you know we took green there and and he didn't go back and why we didn't go back and you know my response was I didn't really think about it but you know we were teenagers and it, and we were terrified that night so that's the reason we didn't go back. Yeah. You know we I could we felt we felt like we barely got out of there why go back into it? Well, especially what are we going to carry? I mean, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, the biggest thing I could have got from my my household would probably be a kitchen knife. Well, I had <laughs> I had my guns and stuff. I had a twelve gauge yeah. and my hunting rifle, but you know, we just didn't think that way as teenagers, and we were on somebody else's property, and you know, in those days, you, you know, you had to. You had to respect people's rights and stuff. We weren't just going to go do yeah. stupid things, and we it just the thought just didn't occur to us. And we didn't want to go back out and be, you know, from the frying pan to the end of the fire. Yeah, I didn't want to be food. We were lucky enough to get out of it that that night. You know, why go back in and tempt fate again? You know, and that's a good point. The 
Will, I think you and I are both of the opinion that they recognize you. So when you come back in, they know who you are. Yeah, exactly. So if you provoked them the, the last time, and you've said this in the past, that it's you can slight these creatures in a way that is very benign to us, but to them it's a major uh, offense. Yeah, you don't know what's going to set them off. Yeah, right, right. And they have a, you know, they're very temperamental. I think yeah. we got so much of the reaction is because, and, and Tom brought this up last week when we interviewed him, Tom Seward. Um, you know, and he said the same thing. It doesn't take much to, much to offend them. And sometimes if you go into their area, they're going to let you know if they want you out. And I think that's what they were doing that night. I think they said, you know, basically all the stuff they were doing was, you guys need to go. So that, that that's crazy, you know, because, I mean, how the Clark's Ranch has been there, what, at least two generations, maybe? Yeah, but the creatures weren't up at the ranch. They were out in the woods. They were out for quite a bit farther right. out there. So, you know, who knows how long they'd been coming through that area. Yeah. You know, it cracked me up, though. The family, the Clark, fan, Clark Ranch family, seemed to be very well aware <laughs> what was out there and they made it clear crystal clear you guys go on out there we're not yeah it's a, it's the screams are coming from over there you guys can go out there but we're not going <laughs> we're Help not yourself. going out there <laughs> yeah if you guys start screaming we're not coming for you either that's true i forgot about that yeah they said they weren't coming out to get us either <laughs> oh is that right <laughs> yeah i forgot about that <laughs> I, I was like what <laughs> yeah <laughs> it brought some interesting times but you know right now with uh my head is going like in thirty thousand different ways now because maps and now but i was looking at uh some of these news clippings from like 1866 1879 and i'm like oh my god and this is let me see where's um uh mount diablo coral canyon it's like, my God, this stuff was back then, and, and they call it a California gorilla. Some of the oldest, well, the oldest article Green mentions was from around 1811, uh, but there are older references than that. I've got books that I yeah. purchased that have references, you know, much, much older than that. Yeah. Oh, and I and I got that Yadu, so it just, I'm, I just started reading it. So I haven't got into it yet, but I, I've been going through all these other, um, let me see. Oh, wow. There, we just got to talking about that, right. but the, uh, where, uh, it's easy to offend these things. I just got done reading this article in 1889 where they say that it, it was on a revenge thing. Somebody took a pot shot and mm-hmm. then actually followed it to this to their cabin and started throwing throwing boulders. Oh yeah! I mean, so I tell people I don't mean, don't just go randomly shoot at one. Big well, mis- big mistake. Yeah, isn't that what happened on Mount Saint Helens with uh, Fred? With Fred Beck and the it? rest of the group, you bet. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and Will, you had that picture for the longest time on uh, Witness of the Unknown, where there was a creep, whole group of these things throwing boulders at the cabin 
<laughs> yeah, I wish I knew who the artist was. In that it's a, it's a great that was picture. Eight Canyon? Was yeah. that the Eight Canyon? Yeah, one? that's where we went to, Milo, in 76. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, as, as much as I would like to say that was cool, it was, man, I was on my edge of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> well, we well, did. Milo, you're. We did find yeah, footprints first the first night. What? Go ahead, Tom. I'm sorry. No, no, the footprints. I want to hear about no, that. No, we, we did find footprints the first night we were up there. Yeah. Oh, okay. We definitely did. That was the, that well, was the first night when Scott lost the keys in his wallet, and we found the footprints less than twenty feet away from where we found the wallet and keys. Now is that weird or is that weird? Well, here, you know what you said, Scott. Actually, they were placed together on top of the when his keys on his wallet. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> uh, was that something subconsciously? Well, we that even Scott just did. Do you remember we even forgot? We even kind of talked about it that night. We're like, yeah. this is too weird. The stuff. Well, I remember the keys were laying on top of the wallet, like they were placed there. And I don't think Scott would have done that. He would have kept them in his pocket. Well, that's because that's what he said, and he was like, "Oh no, that's when we all started crap ourselves." Right. It was like, "I lost my keys of all." I got well, then when we found the prints, it was like, "Well, now," because remember we were kind of conjecturing: did whatever made those prints? Did that put the keys in the wallet here? Yeah, you know that because we had no I, idea. I mean, they were just they were no. pla- yeah, they were. It was obvious they had been placed there. Well, they didn't just fall out of his pocket. Because the keys were sitting neatly on the wallet. That's right. They were. And if they'd fallen out, the stuff would have been just laying there. That is, it's not haphazard. Um, no. It was, it wasn't like just tossed and it was like neatly placed on top of it. Like, like it cared. <laughs> I feel sorry for these morons. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good, good point. Cause what's the, purpose why you know we always think of these things as malevolent but does this show i mean that shows some incredible amount of uh consideration on their part well here didn't didn't we meet a uh, a party that was going up there will and they got hurt we did they when, they died that weekend up there they were on, yeah. remember we ran into the, the people who were on horseback they were up there hunting right that's right and they were asking us what we were doing, and they, and they probably were thinking, "Oh, these guys are going to die." <laughs> well, tell us the story. Don't don't leave it open. What 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 happened? Well, that we were, I think we were on our second trip back with like the tents and food and or whatever, and uh, uh, it was me, it was Will, me, and and Brian, and we met these. Uh, um guys on horseback and they were like saying so where are you guys said and we told them you know you know we're we're i don't think we said anything about sasquatch or anything but you know we're going well we're just enjoying our 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 week away from high school you know we just about to graduate or whatever and and i think that was pretty much about it and then but they they were definitely loaded for bear because they all had their you know they had their hunt, hunting on horseback stuff going you know not that I'm a hunter I don't know none of that crap or stuff 
But, uh, you know, when we met him, it was like we Will came to me in high school. We were in class and he goes, you know, those guys we met, they're they're gone. And I'm like, what? Yeah, they're they're dead. So that what was, was the time frame. When did they say it happened? You know, I don't know. Will's the one who told me. and I was like, man, that, that was crazy. Yeah, Will, so what was the deal with than that? we were. I'm sorry? Well, no, no, I, I was asking Will, what's, what, what was the, uh, what are the details of that? Because it sounds like they were almost, what, warning you or concerned that you were going into an area that was uh, dangerous? Are you talking about the it was dangerous? or are you talking about the, the signals from, from our, our furry friends? <laughs> no, 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 I'm talking about the guys on horseback. Um, you know, they, they, I think they were just going to say, well, you guys, you know, enjoy yourselves. I think they were sarcastic. I think a lot of their stuff was, you know, the way they saw us come in, the way they saw us, you know, horsing around. And they're like, oh, yeah, you guys are going to die up here. You know, <laughs> that's the way I, I, I got from them when they were there. You know, like, yeah, you guys don't know crap. <laughs> oh, the, the, the guys on horseback, yeah. Yeah. You know, so I think on their on their way out, they muttered to each other, yeah, these guys are the ones that are going to die. <laughs> yeah, they, they came in from the south, I'm pretty sure, so they came a long ways, and it's too bad yeah. you know, what happened to them. But, you know, that, era, that country is, it's tough country. Well, I mean, I, we got there at night, and I was jumping off on onto trees and and <laughs> the, the cliff. I don't know. I swear to God, God has watched over me through um, plenty of time I, when I was an idiot. Well, but, we, you know, we were teenagers, so you know. You know, I I jumped off onto a onto a tree, and I found out the next morning that was a cliff. So. <laughs> <laughs> You know, oh, oh my God! I just got to say that God has looked over me, boy. Uh, so I, I, I was just amazed when we found out that those guys died up there. And and you know, I think I, I pretty much after everything that we've seen, that I think it was. I actually think it was, you know, Sasquatch. Yeah, yeah. Well, we got a couple of minutes left, fellas. What do we have in the way of questions for the last uh, couple of minutes of this segment? Um, I would like to say, well, most of mine right now, I would like to say that I totally want to, God, here I am. I'm, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Tom, you got any questions? Well, we got, yeah, I got a couple of them here. This is uh, Joe from Raleigh, North Carolina, and he's a longtime listener and fan. So thanks, Joe. We really appreciate that. Uh, he says, I have a question for Will. In the past few episodes with Milo, Will's talked about his experiences growing up with the creatures on his family's farm in the immediate area. He says, the question, is the farm still there, and is the area where Will grew up still experiencing activity he says i know 
you mentioned the area's been built up since he was a young man, but he was just curious. And I'll let you answer that one, and I'll ask his next question. Well, my dad sold, we had 10 acres there. You know, we moved from a 40-acre piece to a 10-acre piece where I lived as a teenager. Uh, my dad sold that half that to one of my sisters, and then they sold it to somebody else. And then he sold, once he, after he retired, he sold the other five acres. So the house and outbuildings and everything are gone. I think they have a couple of, you know, double-wide trailers there now. Uh, so that's all that's there. They cut the apple trees down and the cherry trees and even the woods. I noticed last time I was up there, uh, I don't think you went out there with me, Milo. I went out there uh, and the woods, you know, where that happened, where I had the encounter, yeah. they were they were developing that. So a lot of that's gone. Of course, locations are there, but they've been developed or are being developed, unfortunately. And a lot more people have moved into that area. Oh, it's crazy back up there. Yeah. All right, so the second question uh, Joe has, he says, also, as Will dived into this subject, um, was he ever able to track the pair in his first face-to-face -face encounter? He goes, I realize it may have been a while since the encounter. And, uh, you know, you came up, you didn't come up with a tra tracking method until uh, until you're older. So this sort of goes back to what you were talking a little bit ago, but um, did you ever track that same pair again? No, I mean, you know, we knew where they were going to, you know, they were heading down and, and South Hill Puyallup is about seven miles north of that area. So they didn't have very far to go. They were coming through that area where I lived um, and they were going north and that's the direction the tracks were going when we followed them the next day, they were heading towards the north until we lost the trail. But as far as, you know, finding out any more beyond that, I, people have contacted me periodically over the years, and it's it's kind of been a slow process. So the people either hear the show or they talk to somebody that I know, and then they'll get a hold of me that way. Uh, so information has trickled in, you know, things that happened back in the 70s and that time period in the 80s. But um, as far as tracking the creatures, I mean, they, they really developed the South Hill Puyallup area big time. They've cut huge chunks of forest down and they built tons of houses up there so the creatures aren't coming there anymore I, I don't know what they're currently doing um, that'll change their behavioral patterns hopefully I answered that absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah well I know I know on one show we were talking to an, and I met her was when we were talking to Brandy mm -hmm. and and a lot of that was inside you know like not really you know like uh these warehouse uh construction sites and it seems like they 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 kind of tend to like go through those because they're they're largely vacant yeah, it could be a time sure, if there's something out there you know because them. when i climbed over into the side and saw where from her house when they were said it they actually got rocks thrown at the house now that's over by fort lewis so that's a different group yeah, and, and the Puyallup group, the Puyallup Screamer. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, that group, but, that group is over kind of in the Squally River region, and the group mm -hmm. that I encountered, that's they. Now they they. Oh, come, so you you're saying that's a whole okay? Yeah, I'm, that's a whole different group. Wow. Yeah, the but ones that close together. Huh? 
that close together. Oh, I yeah, mean, sure. where their territories are like rubbing up against each other. Oh, sure. That's... Yeah, the boundaries, yeah, they'll overlap. Huh. Yeah, the, the territories will overlap. Because, well, I know I definitely ran into them guys, you know, the, the Fort Lewis group. Actually, anybody familiar with that area, if you know where Mountain Highway is, that's kind of the, that's sort of the rough boundary between the two territories. If that makes any sense, Milo. Yeah, it does now, because yeah. I didn't know it was two different groups. Oh, I yeah. thought that was just the one group with, you know, having all of what, uh, Pierce, Pierce County, oh, no, really. No, it's, it's different. Uh, the groups that I encountered and, you know, that was the Puyallup Screamer Bunch, they'll come down several different river systems. You know, they used to come down the Puyallup and Carbon Rivers. Sometimes okay. they'll go down White River. It just depends on what pattern they pick, and, and it's it's changed by you know so many people being in the area now. Well, I'm by the White River, and you know I I the one that my uh, son-in-law ran into. I mean, I assume that what group would that is that still the same group it's, that it's probably descendants of the ones that we encountered because that was a long time ago. Correct. Okay. Listen, that makes sense. listen, fellas, we're about out of time. Uh, and again, I just wanted to mention that we're going to offer these segments both as the, the regular show for those who like the three-hour show. We're also going to split them up. Um, we'll do the witness as one piece, and we'll do the Q&A as a second piece. So uh, that's what we're going to do from now on. So we're going to give you listeners that we really appreciate some uh, different opportunities and some variables so you can listen differently. If you don't have time, you can listen to the hour show. And then same with the uh, midweek show. It won't always be a full hour, folks. Uh, sometimes it, it depends on the stories and what we have. So, you know, maybe 30 minutes, between 30 minutes and an hour. That's what I'll say. Tom, Milo, any final thoughts? Well, yes. I want to thank everybody for their excellent questions and Keep them coming. They keep us on our toes. They really shed light on the topic. And you can send us your questions to questions. That's questions, plural, at creekdevil.com. That's our domain. So questions at creekdevil.com. And please comment in the comments for this show. They always generate an interesting discussion. Any last words, Milo? Hi, Tom said it. I'm good. I'm I'm happy. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll wrap this up, and thank you, everyone, for listening. In Bigfoot history, Mount Shasta area, California, August 1956. Mrs. J. Pomeray, Butte, Montana, wrote to Roger Patterson that she and others saw what appeared to be a bear run across the highway on two legs taking big steps just north of Mount Shasta. Welcome. This is a series of six stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one, ape-like monsters.
Sightings of monstrous ape-like creatures lurking in the darkness of forests and mountainous regions of the world have been reported since the Middle Ages. In 840 A.D., Agobard, the Archbishop of Lyons, told of three such demons, giant people of the forest and mountains, who were stoned to death after being displayed in chains for several days. In his chronicles, Abbot Ralph of Coggeshell Abbey, Essex, England, wrote of a strange monster whose charred body had been found after a lightning storm on the night of St. John the Baptist in June 1205. He stated that a terrible stench came from the beast with monstrous limbs. Villagers of the Caucasus Mountains have legends of an ape-like wild man going back for centuries. The same may be said of the Tibetans living on the slopes of Mount Everest and the Native American tribes inhabiting the northwestern United States. The Gilyaks, a remote tribe of Siberian native people, claim that there are animals inhabiting the frozen forests of Siberia that have human feelings and travel in family units. Based on the eyewitness descriptions of hundreds of reliable individuals around the world who have encountered these creatures, it would seem that the creatures are more human-like than ape-like or bear-like. For one thing, these giants are repeatedly said by witnesses to have breasts and buttocks. Neither apes nor bears have buttocks, nor do they leave flat-footed human-like footprints. In 1920, the term abominable snowman was coined through a mistranslation of the Tibetan word for the mysterious ape-like monster Yeti, wild man of the snow. For the next two decades, reports of the creature were common in the Himalayan mountain range, but it was not until the close of World War II, 1939-45, that world attention became focused on the unexplained, human-like bare footprints that were being found at great heights and freezing temperatures. The Himalayan activity reached a kind of climax in 1960 when Sir Edmund Hillary, conqueror of Mount Everest, led an expedition in search of the elusive Yeti and returned with nothing shown for his efforts but a fur hat that had been fashioned in imitation of the snowman's scalp. The human-like creature, whether sighted in the more remote wooded or mountainous regions of North America, South America, Russia, China, Australia, or Africa, is believed by some anthropologists to be a two-footed mammal that constitutes a kind of missing link between humankind and the great apes, for its appearance is more primitive than that of Neanderthal. The descriptions given by witnesses around the world are amazingly similar. Height, six to nine feet, weight, 400 to 1,000 pounds, eyes black, dark fur or body hair from one to four inches in length is said to cover the creature's entire body with the exception of the palms of its hands, the soles of its feet, and its upper facial area, nose, and eyelids. Some question the existence of giant ape-like creatures because there is so little physical evidence besides casts of huge human-like footprints. Some researchers respond by pointing out that Mother Nature keeps a clean house. Scavengers soon eat the carcasses of the largest forest creatures, and the bones are scattered. 
Zoologist Ivan T. Sanderson suggested that if these beings are members of a subhuman race, they may gather up their dead for burial in special caves. Dr. Jean Marie Teresa Kaufman agreed that the creatures might bury their dead in secret places. It may be, she theorized, that they may throw the corpses of the deceased into the rushing waters of the mountain rivers or into the abysses of rocky caverns. Others remind the skeptical that it is not unusual for certain of the higher animals to hide the bodies of their dead. Accounts of the legendary elephant's graveyard are well known, and in Ceylon the phrase, to find a dead monkey, is used to indicate an impossible task. Proving the existence of such creatures may seem to many scientists to be an impossible task, but persistent searchers for undeniable evidence of the ape-like beings feel that proof is right around the next corner in some darkened forest. Delving Deeper Reports of a large ape-like creature in the United States and the Canadian provinces are to be found in the oral traditions of native tribes, the journals of early settlers, and accounts in regional frontier newspapers, but wide public attention was not called to the mysterious beast until the late 1950s, when road-building crews in the unmapped wilderness of the Bluff Creek area north of Eureka, California, began to report a large number of sightings of North America's own abominable snowman. Once stories of giant human-like monsters tossing around construction crews' small machinery and oil drums began hitting the wire services, hunters, hikers, and campers came forward with a seemingly endless number of stories about the shrill, squealing, seven-foot forest giant that they had for years been calling by such names as Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Wakwak, Oma, or Saskahavis. In North America, the greatest number of sightings of Bigfoot have come from the Fraser River Valley, the Strait of Georgia, and Vancouver Island, British Columbia, the Ape Canyon region near Mount St. Helens in southwest Washington, the Three Sisters Wilderness west of Bend, Oregon, and the area around the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation especially at the Bluff Creek watershed northeast of Eureka, California. In recent years, extremely convincing sightings of Bigfoot-type creatures have also been made in areas of New York, New Jersey, Minnesota, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Florida. Reports of Bigfoot-type creatures of California go back to at least the 1840s, when miners reported encountering giant two-legged beast-like monsters during the gold rush days. Sightings of the Oma, as the native tribes called them, continued sporadically until August 1958, when a construction crew was building a road through the rugged wilderness near Bluff Creek, Humboldt County, and discovered giant human-like footprints in the ground around their equipment. For several mornings running, the men discovered that something had been disturbing their small equipment during the night. In one instance, an 800-pound tire and wheel from an earth-moving machine had been picked up and carried several yards across the compound. In another, a 300-pound drum of oil had been stolen from the camp, carried up a rocky mountain slope, and tossed into a deep canyon. And in each instance, only massive 16-inch footprints with a 50- to 60-inch stride 
offered any clue as to the vandal's identity. When media accounts of the huge footprints were released, people from the area began to step forward to exhibit their own plaster casts of massive, mysterious footprints and to relate their own frightening encounters with hairy giants, stories that they had repressed for decades for fear of being ridiculed. Not to be outdone, Canadians began telling of their own startling accounts with Sasquatch, a tribal name for Bigfoot, that had been circulating in the accounts of trappers, lumberjacks, and settlers in the Northwest Territories since the 1850s. Long before the frontier folk discovered the giant of the woods, the Sasquatch had become an integral element in many of the myths and legends of the native people. Copyright The Gale Group, Inc. This article from Keep Media carried no author, citation, or date. This is the end of story number one. Story number two. Bigfoot hunter trusts his nose to find creature. Big Cypress Bayou, near Jefferson, Texas. The motor sputtered, then died, and as the canoe drifted deeper into the swamp, gray tangles of bearded Spanish moss gave way to murky water and black cypress. Knuckles whitened as Charles DeVore ripped the pull cord. His two-man canoe, three decades old and uneasy under the weight of three men, teetered dangerously with every tug. DeVore yanked the cord once more, then gave up. "'We'll just have to paddle,' he said. There wasn't time to fix the propeller, and there wasn't time for precaution. The party pressed further into the swamp, because that's where Bigfoot was. Bigfoot, or Sasquatch, that elusive creature more often associated with the Pacific Northwest, lives among these knobby trees of the Big Cypress Bayou, DeVore will tell you. While other people have seen the creature, DeVore, well, he has smelled it. Of course, it's the most indescribably putrid, gosh-awful stench you can imagine. It's overpowering, DeVore said. DeVore has discussed that stench with dozens of East Texans who have reported brushes with the hairy hominid. He investigates sightings for the Texas Bigfoot Research Center, a Dallas-based group that documents close encounters throughout the state, most of them in the Piney Woods and Big Thicket. Although DeVore professes to be an amateur, he knows enough to understand the creature's ways. Bigfoot no longer scares me, said DeVore of medium height, and a bit paunchy at sixty-four. It might if uh, one was standing right over me, but they've never hurt anybody. I have a fear of wild hogs, wild dogs, and anything else out there that might bite my butt. But I really have no fear of Bigfoot. So DeVore paddles the bayou in the middle of the night, a coon hunting spotlight, and night vision camera at his side. He also wanders the forest trails he is bush-hogged near his trailer house. He sniffs the night air and listens for snapped twigs. It's a hobby, he said, a passionate interest. DeVore moved to the big cypress bayou, the slow-moving body of water that slinks between Lake of the Pines and Cattle Lake in 1990. A heart attack had forced him into early retirement. He told himself, 
I'm going to sit up here beside this water until the day I die and enjoy it. And that's just what he did, puttering around in his canoe with the little outboard motor that he had rigged to the back, or gliding across the deep green water in his kayak, exploring inlets and taking photographs. It's so beautiful out here, he said. Normally I'm not talking, and I sneak up on all kinds of wildlife. As he paddled deeper into the forest of submerged cypress trees, stained black by years of up-and-down water levels, thoughts returned to the rickety little canoe, then to the cold black water, and always to the possibility of sneaking up on the most elusive creature of them all. THE WAYS OF BIGFOOT Although Bigfoot is reportedly huge, seven or eight feet tall, and more than five hundred pounds, he is awfully hard to find. That's because he hates being around humans, believers say. When people such as Devor go tromping into the woods, Bigfoot runs the other way. He lives in uninhabitable areas, especially around Sabine and Sulphur Rivers, the Big and Little Cypress Bayous, and Caddo Lake, where he is affectionately known as the Caddo Critter. We have more swampy areas in East Texas where humans do not live, Devor said. There's more sightings during the deer season than any other time because people are in the woods. With the advent of ATVs, outdoor enthusiasts can go farther into Bigfoot territory than ever before. In the past decade alone, the Texas Bigfoot Research Center has investigated five sightings in Harrison County, four in Panola County, and three in Russ County. Many of them involved hunters. One Longview man said that he tried to shoot the creature with his twenty-two. It let out a terrifying scream roar, and the squirrel hunter was so frightened he nearly wet himself, he reported. The Longview man's description of Bigfoot reflects many others in East Texas. Long brownish or black hair, the deathly scream roar or scream growl, and that stench which DeVore believes Bigfoot excretes, possibly from his armpits when he feels threatened. Crystal Steiniger of Harleton says that she has experienced the smell and heard the screams. Steiniger and her colleagues with the East Texas Bigfoot Independent Study get together once a month to look for tracks and hair samples and record Bigfoot's noises on all-night camping trips. They used to attract the creature with Bigfoot calls, but they soon abandoned the calling devices because they made it too aggressive. If they're walking by us, we want to hear their normal, non-threatening type of vocalizations, she said. Adding later, I've heard solid screams. I've heard grunts. Kind of a grunt growl when you get a little too close. That was one of the best recordings. Of course, we got in our vehicle real quick. We didn't leave, but we got in our vehicle. The researchers have posted many of the recordings on their website, www.easttexasbigfoot.com. With so many reported encounters, skeptics quickly ask for conclusive proof. Hair samples or bones, for example. It's well known and not disputed that we have black bears in East Texas, DeVore counters. Nobody's ever seen a body or a skeleton of those. Predators in East Texas, which are numerous, take care of a body almost overnight, 
There are many theories, one, that they may carry their bodies off. After all, these are groups of them. It's not one lone animal. People have taken pictures of black bears, the skeptics note. One of those skeptics is Charlie Mueller, a Longview-based wildlife biologist for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. He managed the Cattle Lake Wildlife Area for eight years, and he said he's never seen evidence of Bigfoot's existence. If there's a bear out there, I'm going to find bear tracks. If there's a human out there, I'm going to find footprints, he said. But there's no Bigfoot tracks that I've seen. Mueller said he's studied supposed Bigfoot nests, but to him, they just looked like a pile of branches that had fallen from a tree during an ice storm. People let their imaginations take control a lot of times, and it's easy for someone to point out things that seem to be out of the ordinary that actually are not, he said. But to layman folks, people that don't know a lot about wildlife and the happenings of wildlife in their habitats, a lot of times they don't understand the normal things that go on. Fear of that kind of rebuttal, Devorah and Steiniger say, keeps many witnesses from coming forward. A lot of people will think they're nuts, or if they do mention it to somebody, they'll say, Oh, it was just a bear. You don't know what you're talking about, Steiniger said. They'll kind of blow it off and not take it seriously, because there's been a lot of people who have spent a lot of time out in the woods who have never seen a thing. They're happily trotting along without a clue, says Devorah. You're going to be ridiculed. You're thinking you're nuts, so most people are real reluctant to talk. If they are going to speak to you, you've got to be real quiet about it. Of course, being in the club gives me credibility. On the Bayou It was a perfectly clear October afternoon on the bayou, and Charlie Devore sliced his canoe through red and green water, rippling under a light breeze. He had agreed to guide a reporter and photographer to the site of two Bigfoot encounters, that he'd investigated only a half a mile from his house. Because the land had changed hands, the only legal access was via boat, or, in this case, an old canoe. It's better to stick to the water this time of year, anyway, he said, because it's not too smart to traipse through the woods in the middle of deer season. As he guided the canoe, he recalled his first encounter. He hadn't even realized how close he'd come to meeting Bigfoot on that night as he walked the trails near his house. I'd always gone with four dogs, sometimes five, a couple of my own plus the neighbors. These dogs generally were not afraid of anything, he said. When I hit that stench, I looked around for the dogs and realized, hey, I was alone. He whistled and snapped his fingers, but the dogs wouldn't come. They just sat there squirming. I decided the dogs were smarter than me, so I went away, he said. The next night, the same thing. It went on occasionally for six weeks, he said. I wouldn't run into it every night, but it got to be the old hat that when I ran into the stink, I'd just turn around. He questioned hunters and outdoor enthusiasts who suggested that it might have been a wild hog but Devorah knew better. He'd smelled hogs, and it wasn't the same. In 2002, Devorah heard about 
the annual Texas Bigfoot Conference in Jefferson. This year's event begins at 10 a.m. Saturday at Jefferson High School. DeVore went and then returned to the bayou with some answers and more than a few new questions. After going to that conference and finding out, hey, these things have a stink, I started talking to people who had the stink on them before, he said, and the stink described was just too close to what I had experienced. At that point, I had already gotten curious about them. I talked to dozens of people who had experienced it. But stinking isn't believing, and DeVore still hadn't seen one. He gunned the boat into the swamp, past hulking primeval trees and low-lying branches toward Bigfoot. A Close Encounter When the cypress became so thick they crowded out the sun, their reflections vanished from the bayou's surface. The water instantly was black. The canoe, further now from the channel's current, cut through a sheet of scum. Devore talked above the hum of the outboard motor. Suddenly it cut out, and he couldn't get it going again. Unseen crows shrieked in the abrupt silence. Devore took the paddle and rowed through Benton Lake, a small stagnant body of water that adjoined the bayou, until the trees kept him from going any further. Over there, he said, pointing to a spot on the lake's southwestern edge. The witness had been hunting deer as he crouched behind dense brush at mid-afternoon. He reported to the Texas Bigfoot Research Center that he noticed movement in the corner of his eye. Fifty yards away, the hunter told DeVore that Bigfoot emerged from the water, stood up, looked side to side, then walked into the woods and disappeared. The hunter watched him for about two minutes. The creature was six feet tall and covered in hair from head to toe, and in the absence of direct sunlight he appeared to be completely black. Devore, having interviewed the hunter several times, deemed him a very credible witness. Finished with his story, Devore docked the canoe on a muddy bank that had built up along the edge of a massive cypress tree and fiddled with the motor. A piece of twine had wrapped itself in the propeller, and after he unwound it, it cranked on the first pole. He ordered the heaviest of his passengers into the bottom of the canoe, stabilizing it, and he took off for home. Though he did not see Bigfoot today, he knew it was only a matter of time. It exists, he said. Too many people have seen it. It exists. Story originally published by the Longview News Journal, Texas. West Ferguson, October 17, 2004. This is the end of story number two. Story number three. Fort Hall, Bannock County, Idaho, August 2012. A conversation I had. All the activity mentioned is southeast Idaho near Fort Hall, like the camping trip with rocks, was around Fort Hall, Idaho, where there is a lot of Bannock and Shoshone Native Americans. Every fall, I drive up Highway I-15 from Southern California to Montana to hunt with friends there. I tend to find myself stopping in Pocatello, Idaho, 
for a motel, and also visit a certain bar there. Twice I have run into a man I will call Gary, for this submission is without his knowledge. I had a casual conversation with Gary at the bar in November 2011. Now, before I go on, I want to mention we were drinking beer, and no other kind of liquor is served there. He and I just happened to walk in about the same time and then started talking, so we were not intoxicated. Since I had met him a year prior, I felt like this was an instance of synchronicity, and maybe there was something special that he was about to share with me. So I asked him some questions. Not able to repeat the conversation verbatim, these are the answers and stories I got from him, which I wrote down an hour later when I got back to my motel room. I asked him if he was a Native American. He said yes, half Bannock Indian, and a tribal member. His age was early fifties. When I asked him if he had ever seen a Bigfoot, he snapped back a bit, and then turned his back to me. I thought to myself, here's another person who might think I'm a nut job. But then Gary turned around slowly, and facing me, he said, Three times, he went on. I grew up in the Fort Hall, Idaho area. My earliest recollection was a camping trip as a small boy in the early 1960s. My father, cousin, and I were walking through a canyon, and something threw rocks the size of baseballs at us from afar. There was also the sound of timber cracking. My father told us we needed to leave the area, as we are not wanted by the mountain people. We are the Agai people, meaning salmon-eating, and we know all the good salmon runs. Tell me about seeing one. I saw one in the afternoon on a dirt path below me in a small canyon. The Bigfoot was dragging a sagebrush to erase his tracks and conceal his footprints. They will also step on stones when they can to avoid making tracks. Well, you mentioned three sightings you've had. Where? Around Eel River, Trinity Forks, Snake River. Some people ask if they are real, then why are there never any bones found? Do they bury their dead? Yes, but in water, weighted down in rivers or ponds with stones. So we are talking about an animal that is shy, clever, and territorial. All signs of intelligent creature? They are more of a spirit than a human. And at this point, Gary seemed to lose interest and change the subject. I sensed the subject of Bigfoot was somewhat taboo for him to tell me about, and not meant for the non-tribal. Todd C. Homer, August 23, 2012 That's the end of story number three. Story number four. Kino Hill, Yukon Territory. Kino Hill, Yukon Territory, summer 2000. I'm not sure which summer it was, maybe five, six years back. The wife and I were returning from Kino Hill early one morning. Our coffee thermos was in the back of the truck, and it was my fault it was back there. She wanted coffee, so... 
we stopped some miles before Elsa and got out to get the thermos and relieve myself on the side of the road. There was a stand of trees there. I wandered off a ways, walked way up there. I don't know just why I did that. It was there that I seen this bear sitting down at a carcass of elk. Maybe deer. Don't know what that carcass was for sure. Not much left of it. No rack, mostly a skeleton. Maybe a doe. I'm thinking it was Black Bear at first, sitting down beside the remains, but that be some unusual Black Bear. Bears usually stand up and tear at their kill, and eat it standing up. This bear sat there, pulling at what was left of it. Way off in the distance, there be a fox pacing back and forth, awaiting its turn at the kill. And just then, my wife yelled at me to get myself back in the truck. The bear heard her and stood up on two legs, looking in my direction. I fell backwards a bit at its size. By God, I seen it was no bear. I believe it was a boke, and it had a piece of something from the carcass clutched in its hand. I don't know what. Looked like weeds. It stood there looking at my direction, and the fox took off at a dead run. The wife yelled again, and this boke started waving its arms up and down, and stomping forward on one leg at me. Damn, I couldn't make these legs of mine move. I seen that it was black, and it was naked except for hair around the usual male parts, chest, arms, and it was unshaved looking. The beard was long and scraggly with crud and stuff in the whiskers. It took a step to my direction and stomped a foot, waving its arms like a crazed man might if he was high on something. I fell back again and started crawling like a baby to the truck on my hands and knees, and finally was able to get up and run to the truck. I saw my wife looking big-eyed at me. Behind me on the top of the area where the stand of trees was be that boak, standing watching us get into the truck. We started the engine up and drove off, leaving the damn thermos out in the middle of the road there. My woman is Tashoni, First Nation Canadian, and I am English, and probably Micmac, though I was raised up an orphan by whites named the Thomas clan in a settlement near Nova Scotia. We married thirty-eight years ago, and her folk know the bulk, but we don't see any in our lifetime until that day. I was never taught about bokes. My woman told me what her people know. It was a shock to both of us. The boke is a strange marvel. Yes, it is a strange sight. The wife says it is good to see one. I don't know how good having the shit scared out of me can be a great blessing, but she says so, and I listened. We don't speak about this much. The wife is still mad at me because... I lost the thermos of coffee. I could have been killed, and she would still be mad about the thermos. We don't own a computer. My friend here at the petrol stop looked up and found your website listed. So we tell you about this incident. About the bulk. We are not sure on height. I was in shock when it stood up full size and not thinking clearly, but I know it was maybe eight feet up and features fitting to its size. At the time, it could have been ten feet tall, for all I noted. 
I don't know what it weighed. I didn't stop to ask, ha ha, but it was sturdy, stocky, and plenty of bulk. I weigh 240 pounds, and a mid-sized man, the bulk must weigh double what I weigh. There was no sound except the stomping sound, no smell, was black, and had whiskers and long straight hair like woman down its back and shoulders, black like shiny. There was nothing else around but a pacing fox. Nothing else I can think of. I was sure it was a black bear before it stood up and started waving its arms and stomping. My God, I get hair on my neck when I think about it. My wife said the boak is leftovers from cast-out Indian tribe. Most was killed or run off. Not many left since white men came here, and what's left is scattered and shy. They tell me the boak is skilled hunter and opportunist that works mostly after dark of nightfall. Leonard Jack Thomas Edited for Readability and Logged, April 2005 This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Broward County, Alligator Alley, Florida, 1960. It all happened in August of 1960. I was 12 years old. I was with my mother and stepfather on a vacation trip to South Florida. It was my first trip away from home. We lived in a small town, Longwood, north of Orlando, and this trip was about all we could afford for a week. I remember we headed down the east coast through Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, and on to Miami, and all the way to Key West. No interstates in Florida back then. Once we came back to the mainland, we went to the Miami Zoo one morning, and then headed west on Alligator Alley through the Everglades to Naples. It is very hot and humid in South Florida, compared to the rest of Florida, since it is in a subtropic zone. The car was not air-conditioned. I remember sitting in the back seat with my head close to the window to catch the wind. That is when I spotted it. It was standing, facing the highway, in front of a small hammock of knee-high grass, palmetto shrubs, and a few pine and palm trees, about 150 feet from the road. We locked eyes for the entire duration of the sighting. I can remember flipping back in the seat and watching it through the rear window until I couldn't see it any longer. It was not massive, but not thin, tall, maybe seven feet, medium brown, the color of a coconut. I could not see the feet or knees, no neck. I do not remember any facial feature other than dark eyes, and I did not see a profile. It turned its upper body as it stared, not its head no order. I did not say a word since it did not strike me as being unusual. We had just come from the Miami Zoo, and this was my first trip from home, and I had seen all kinds of strange animals for the first time that morning. This memory is so specific. When we arrived in Naples, I can recall swimming in the pool at the motel and thinking how hot that animal must be in all that heat with all that fur. The words Bigfoot and Sasquatch were unknown back then. I don't recall giving any thought to this creature until the 70s, 
when my son and I watched a show called In Search Of. Then I was so busy with work, home and family, and doing things for my husband's company, I didn't find the time to go to the library and research the subject. It crossed my mind briefly back in the mid-80s after a TV show, but nothing seriously. Obviously, this was all prior to easy access to any topic on an in-home computer. Then I watched A Monster Quest back in the 1st of 2008 and googled Bigfoot after that show. A whole new world opened up. Most of the sightings of Bigfoot in Florida are in Collier County, Everglades. There is one report on another database very similar to mine concerning some college kids heading to Miami on the same road and seeing a Bigfoot watch them go by from a hammock. Alligator Alley to native Floridans is two-lane State Road 41 from Naples to Miami, not Interstate 75. It was also known as the Tamiami Trail. Lynn Chandler, Destin, Florida. That's the end of story number five. Story number six. Bigfoot Creatures Photographed in California's Sierra National Forest. July 28, 2009. The Bigfoot creature may have been captured on a remote trail camera placed in the Sierra National Forest, based on photography evidence released by Sanger Paranormal Society. Investigator Jeffrey Gonzalez said Tuesday night that multiple cameras were put in place in this remote area on Memorial Day weekend, and retrieved on June 7, 2009. Gonzalez said they did not immediately see the evidence, but upon closer inspection noticed what appears to be the Bigfoot creature. Gonzalez said a group returned to the site to review the exact capture spot, after many theories surfaced once the original image was released in early July. The tree stump theory was ruled out, he said, because the dark object is not there. Gonzalez said the bear theory does not stand up either because the image does not have a snout on the head. You can see features of a human face such as the nose, mouth, and chin, Gonzalez reports. The arms on a bear when standing do not hang that far down. We also took measures on how high this thing was. According to the leaves and the branches that were covering the object's face, the tape measure said it was between eight and nine feet tall. The same camera that took the picture of the object also took pictures of other objects, such as black bear and deer, which does not resemble the object in any way. Photo, Jeffrey Gonzalez standing in the same spot as the object in the image. Gonzalez said that Bigfoot investigator David Ragoza has been visiting this location for six years after an elderly Native American pointed it out to him. He told David that this spot in the forest was sacred Indian land and that weird things happen here. He said David has had many individual sightings and has collected footprints, but has never captured anything with the camera until now. Returning to the exact spot where the image was captured, Gonzalez said that the angle of the hill was 45 degrees, which would make it difficult for a bear to stand upright. He also said the object was clearly brown in color, ruling out the black bear 
The Bigfoot creature has been reported in many different parts of the country during the 20th century, including an outbreak during 1973 and 74, primarily in southwestern Pennsylvania, and investigated by Stan Gordon. During that period, hundreds of Bigfoot sightings were reported, as well as hundreds of UFO reports. No photographic evidence exists from that time, although Gordon collected many footprints in that region. Aside from this single image, Gonzalez points out that there were three additional images taken several days earlier near midnight, where a bright light lit up the area. His group cannot account for how this happened, except that they are all ruling out a flashlight as the source of the light in the images. Examiner.com Photos, Jeffrey Gonzalez and Dave Ragoza Comments I don't believe the Ragoza photo of the Bigfoot shape is anything more than a naturally occurring shadow or dark spot on the background tree, and here's why. The photo of the Bigfoot and the subsequent photo of the man are clearly taken from different angles. The first photo was taken from a position considerably to the right of the position from which the second photo was taken. This is made most evident by the fact that the tree against which the man is framed is not even visible in the original photo. I've highlighted some of the most prominent visual landmarks in each photo. The Bigfoot figure in red, as you can see, it's still there in the second photo, but cropped so that only the front of the figure is visible. The leaves of what appear to be a vine maple in green, higher and to the right of the second photo from their position in the original, the large tree to the left in purple, notice how no part of it is obscured by leaves in the second photo. And the line of bark texture on the foreground tree in blue, in the original photo this line is well on the left side of the tree trunk, and the second photo, it is almost centered. I think that if one were to return to that spot and really line up one's camera to the position from which the original photo was taken, one would see the Bigfoot standing there. It's too bad the photos are too small. If they were larger and clearer, I believe the discrepancies between them would be more evident. Seeing may be believing, but it's not always the truth. Randy Stradley, September 7th, 2009 This ends the reading of the six stories. Thank you for listening. Bigfoot Still on March as Experts Try Explanations by Betty Allen, Humboldt Times Correspondent, October 31st, 1958 Willow Creek Almost every conversation one hears around here either begins on the subject of Bigfoot, or soon swings around to him. We presume Bigfoot is a him. In this northern area of California, there is considerable speculation as to just what or who is making the great tracks. They say is a favorite expression, and the they say authorities are filled with theories. Many of those who have actually seen the tracks taking off down the roadway are split into two camps. There are those of the confirmed school of thought that the whole thing is a hoax, a wonderfully conceived hoax. On the other hand, there are those who have been 
converted to the side of the room which believes that the tracks are real, as the shoes they have on. So far, the whole thing is fraught with mystery. Those who believe in a hoax and those who think the tracks are real are in deadlock. They say, the source of authority, who isn't sure but talking, that the tracks are made by spacing carved feet a certain distance apart on the treads of a tractor or on a roller used to smooth the road. Is that possible? Where is this piece of equipment kept? None have seen such a contraption. Individual measurements show some tracks to be 60 inches apart, some 52 inches, and others at 40 inches apart. Here and there, they show on one side and the other sometimes is a small mound of dirt. Sometimes, the tracks step easily up or down the rough terrain. It is not necessarily in the path of a roller. In other places, the tracks are within inches of the edge of the road. In others, in varying distances from the oiled rig or trucks. The ground may be that which tractors have run over. Sometimes, the surface is perfectly smooth. The weight of the entire foot track varies in depth and according to the surface on which Bigfoot has been walking. It doesn't respond to the... This part of the article's column was cut off. The case of the wooden feet that they say are in existence, if true, they must be magnificent models of workmanship. Each toe is separate. Tiny lines of the human foot are visible. The one asks if the toes are hinged to give the startling realism of action observed in the big tracks. There are those who answer with a yes. On Thursday morning, the latest evidence debunks a lot of mechanical claims. That morning, the big tracks of Bigfoot were observed plunging down a side of the hill in the roughest of shale. There was a huge dug-in. The weight caused the feet to slide. What a way to treat someone's carefully developed mechanical handiwork? There is $1,000 which could go to the fund for the badly needed hospital project of the Community Health Association at Hoopa if the wooden feet could be located, proven to be wearable to produce Bigfoot's tracks. So far, the quest for them has been fruitless, as Coronado search for the famed Seven Cities of Cibola. They say the men working on the construction project in the Bluff Creek area are carrying rifles. The rugged mountain wilderness, with its known population of bears and panthers, would make it appear only good sense to have a gun nearby. They say no proof is available that the men working there either believe or disbelieve in the existence of an outsized man or animal. But it is always nice to have a rifle nearby. To say you believe the tracks are genuine, or that you have heard or seen anything unreal, in wrong company, only brings a chorus of head-shaking and ridicule. There should be some serious investigation to definitely determine the status of the mystery of Bigfoot. It should be solved if an answer is at all possible. Until then, the they-says and the doubters will have a picnic poo-pooing the convinced. Of course, this won't stop Bigfoot from making his tracks, because he is out of earshot anyway. Times reporter has a look at tracks says they're real by Betty Allen, Humboldt Times correspondent. September 1958, Willow Creek, California. This is my story about Bigfoot. 
idle words about wanting to see the huge tracks which have been appearing on the access road construction job at Bluff Creek caught up with me Friday morning at 7 o'clock. Philip Ammon, a neighbor, knocked at my door reminding me of the journey ahead. Checking with the Jess Bemis family, we found that there were new tracks to see. In the light traffic of early morning, we were soon rolling into Hoopa Valley with its light current of blue smoke hanging low. On the way to Wetchpeck, five cows lay in peaceful contentment on a small turnout beside the road. A loaded logging truck passed within inches of their noses. On the one side of the road drops in a sheer descent for hundreds of feet into the Trinity River. On the other side, a rock cliff towered high above us. On down the road, a mother pig and three half-grown piglets brought us to a full stop. On over the Wetchpeck Bridge and up along the Klamath River, we were soon climbing the easy grade out of the canyon on the Bluff Creek Road through a wide road and well-watered, we traveled slowly, for this was totally new country to us. A driver of the water truck directed us to take the lower road around Onion Mountain to the construction site. Tremendous Cliff The country is standing on end in the steep ridges that rise higher and higher. Here and there were rough rock and tremendous cliffs, but it is all slide country. No sandstone or cave formations. Bluff Creek is a good-sized stream and looks like it would be fine for fishing. The rangers at Orleans say, for some reason, it is not. We talked briefly to Charles Doney, who was operating a tractor, and he offered us the use of his pickup truck. We never could have gone the remaining six miles otherwise. Here was a man's busy world. Heavy dirt movers working, but allowing us through. Jackhammer men had to pull their airlines out of our way. Extremely rough in some places, the road was unexpectedly smooth in others. What did we expect to see? Maybe one track, and we could say it was all a hoax. Or maybe an unexpected inner sight might give us the answer. Jerry Crew directed us to the location of the tracks. I'll show you those tracks, Crew said. I could tell that some of the construction men were quite skeptical. I am told that some of them wouldn't even go and take a look. The first actual line of tracks definitely jolted me. On the hard ground where Philip Ammon's number 12s made a very light imprint, the track of Bigfoot sunk a half to three quarters of an inch in depth. Twenty clear, deep footprints marched along the side of the traveled portion of the road. Eighteen more were seen at intervals where the tractors had not run over them. We followed them down the road for some distance and found them in both hard and soft earth. Gravel rolled out of the cut bank to the side of the road, and I quickly looked that way. I was nervous in realizing that I was in the middle of the forest growth. I looked back to see how far the men and the equipment were. The thought passed through my mind. Just what on earth is a peaceful old rocking chair grandmother doing here anyway? Doubts, hoax angle. We measured and studied the tracks. Could they be a hoax? Feet on the end of sticks? Rubber feet? Watching the activity of the men and how hard they were rushing their work to finish this portions of the road before winter, I could hardly see any of them putting in time at night, making three quarters of a mile of tracks of any kind. 
Bigfoot's tracks are in perfect proportion to what one would expect in their stride of sometimes 60 inches, 52 inches, or the one short step over a small mound of dirt, which was 40 inches. Even the depth to which the track had been pressed into the ground was in keeping with their size. What brings Bigfoot into the area? My guess is that the gasoline lantern light at the cook's tent attracts the wanderer's interest. There are workers living in both small tents and trailers close by the road. Now, is this a phony? A human hoax? If it is a prank, it is so natural. Anyone with stilts with feet would have to have both foot impressions, but it isn't that easy to maneuver in the soft earth. If they are wearing novelty story feet, how do they weight them to get the right depth effect? And when a man works hard labor physical all day, does he feel like prowling about at night, missing his sleep to make funny footprints? Of Bigfoot, one of the bosses said, We have an agreement, the thing and I, but he doesn't know about it. If he leaves me alone, I'll leave him alone. We returned home, definitely no wiser, only knowing we had seen 38 perfect tracks at least 16 inches long and 7 inches wide. We saw them. We measured them. We are still puzzled. The Spokane Indians, 1975. Indians had a Sasquatch, too. Those who think the stories about a huge, hairy mystery giant called a Sasquatch are of a recent origin should talk with the Wenatchee Valley College historian, John Brown. Brown has found evidence that the search for such a legendary creature was underway in the Northwest by the time the earliest white men arrived in the region. While researching material for a book he co-authored with Dr. Robert Ruby, the Spokane Indians Children of the Sun, he came across a passage that must relate to what is now called a Sasquatch. The reference was in a letter written by the Reverend Alcana Walker from Fort Colville in 1840. With his wife, Mary, Alcana Walker was a missionary to the Spokanes. In a letter to the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, he wrote, I suppose you will beat with me if I trouble you with a little of their, the Spokane Indians, superstition, which has recently come to my knowledge. They believe in the existence of a race of giants, which inhabit a certain mountain off to the west of us. This mountain is covered with perpetual snow. They inhabit its top. They may be classed with Goldsmith's nocturnal class as they cannot see in the daytime. They hunt and do all their work in the night. They are men-stealers. They come to the people's lodges in the night when the people are asleep and put them under their skins and take them to their place of abode without their even waking. When they awake in the morning, they are wholly lost, not knowing in what direction their home is. The account the Indians give of these giants will in some measure correspond with the Bible account of such a race of beings. They say their track is about a foot and a half long. They will carry two or three beams upon their back at once. They frequently come in the night, steal their salmon from the nets, and eat them raw. If the people are away, they always know when they are coming very near by their strong smell, which is most intolerable. It is not uncommon for them to come in the night and give three whistles. Then the stones will begin to hit the houses. 
the people are troubled with their nocturnal visits. Brown says he has known about many Spokane Indian legends about monsters, but they have been of the Paul Bunyan type that carves out valleys, etc. The ogre referred to in the letter is not really a monster, just a little bigger than man, and he had no idea what mountain to the west is referred to, the one that always is snow-topped. Perhaps it was Mount Rainier. The Spokans also believed in a race of little people, Brown says. Even if the stories about the little people and the giants aren't true, the Indians believed they were, he says. Many people today believe just as fervently in the existence of a hairy, man-like object that sometimes is glimpsed, but never really seen. Plaster casts of prints supposedly from the feet of such a creature have been exhibited. One Sasquatch hunter has what he believes to be a picture of the man-animal. This area's involvement with the legend goes back some 25 or 30 years to the wild man of Lichenwaster, supposedly seen on that mountain by fishermen. Myth or fact, no one knows. But at any rate, John Brown's research indicates that reports of such a Bigfoot are nothing new. September 22, 1975. Wenatchee, Washington. Frontiersmen are not, as a rule, apt to be very superstitious. They lead lives too hard and practical, and have too little imagination in things spiritual and supernatural. I have heard but few ghost stories while living on the frontier, and those few were of a perfectly commonplace and conventional type. But I once listened to a goblin story, which rather impressed me. A grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bauman, who, born and had passed all of his life on the frontier, told the story to me. He must have believed what he said, for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain points of the tale. But he was of German ancestry, and in childhood had doubtless been saturated with all kinds of ghost and goblin lore so that many fearsome superstitions were latent in his mind. Besides, he knew well the stories told by the Indian medicine men in their winter camps, of the snow walkers and the specters, the formless evil beings that haunt the forest depths, and dog and waylay the lonely wanderer who after nightfall passes through the regions where they lurk. It may be that when overcome by the horror of the fate that befell his friend, and when oppressed by the awful dread of the unknown, he grew to attribute, both at the time and still more in remembrance, weird and elfin traits to what was merely some abnormally wicked and cunning wild beast. But whether this was so or not, no man can say. When the event occurred, Bauman was still a young man, and was trapping with a partner among the mountains dividing the forks of the salmon from the head of Wisdom River. Not having had much luck, he and his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass, through which ran a small stream said to contain many beavers. The pass had an evil reputation because the year before, a solitary hunter who had wandered into it was slain, seemingly by a wild beast, the half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors who had passed his camp only the night before. The memory of this event, however, weighted very lightly with the two trappers, who were as adventurous and hardy as others of their kind. They took their two lean mountain ponies to the foot of the pass, where they left them in an open beaver meadow, the rocky, timber-clad ground being from there onward impractical for horses. 
They then struck out on foot through the vast, gloomy forest, and in about four hours reached a little open glade where they concluded to camp, as signs of game were plenty. There was still an hour or two of daylight left, and after building a brush lean-to and throwing down and opening their packs, they started upstream. The country was very dense and hard to travel through, as there was much down timber, although here and there the somber woodland was broken by small glades of mountain grass. At dusk, they again reached camp. The glade in which it was pitched was not many yards wide, the tall, close-set pines and firs rising round it like a wall. On one side was a little stream beyond which rose the steep mountain slope, covered with the unbroken growth of evergreen forest. They were surprised to find that during their absence, something, apparently a bear, had visited camp and had rummaged about among their things, scattering the contents of their packs and in sheer wantonness destroying their lean-to. The footprints of the beast were quite plain, but at first they paid no particular heed to them, busying themselves with rebuilding lean-to, laying out their beds and stores and lighting the fire. While Bowman was making ready supper, it being already dark, his companion began to examine the tracks more closely, and soon took a brand from the fire to follow them up, where the intruder had walked along a game trail after leaving the camp. When the brand flickered out, he returned and took another, repeating his inspection of the footprints very closely. Coming back to the fire, he stood by it a minute or two, peering out into the darkness, and suddenly remarked, Bauman, that bear has been walking on two legs. Bauman laughed at this, but his partner insisted that he was right, and upon again examining the tracks with a torch, they certainly did seem to be made by but two paws or feet. However, it was too dark to make sure. After discussing whether the footprints could possibly be those of a human being, and coming to the conclusion that they could not be, the two men rolled up in their blankets and went to sleep under the lean-to. At midnight, Bauman was awakened by some noise and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong, wild beast odor, and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. Grasping his rifle, he fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but must have missed, for immediately afterwards he heard the smashing of the underwood as the thing, whatever it was, rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest and the night. After this, the two men slept but little, sitting up by the rekindled fire, but they heard nothing more. In the morning, they started out to look at the few traps they had set the previous evening and put out new ones. By an unspoken agreement, they kept together all day and returned to camp towards evening. On nearing it, they saw, hardly to their astonishment, that the lean-to had again been torn down. The visitor of the preceding day had returned, and in wanton malice had tossed about their camp kit and bedding and destroyed the shanty. The ground was marked up by its tracks, and on leaving the camp it had gone along the soft earth by the brook. The footprints were as plain as if on snow, and after a careful scrutiny of the trail, it certainly did seem as if, whatever the thing was, it had walked off on but two legs. The men, thoroughly uneasy, gathered a great heap of dead logs and kept up a roaring fire throughout the night. 
one or the other sitting on guard most of the time. About midnight, the thing came down through the forest opposite, across the brook, and stayed there on the hillside for nearly an hour. They could hear the branches crackle as it moved about, and several times it uttered a harsh, grating, long-drawn moan, a peculiar, sinister sound. Yet it did not venture near the fire. In the morning, the two trappers, after discussing the strange events of the last 36 hours, decided that they would shoulder their packs and leave the valley that afternoon. They were the more ready to do this because in spite of seeing a good deal of game sign, they had caught very little fur. However, it was necessary first to go along the line of their traps and gather them, and this they started out to do. All the morning they kept together, picking up trap after trap, each one empty. On first leaving camp, they had the disagreeable sensation of being followed. In the dense spruce thickets, they occasionally heard a branch snap after they had passed, and now and then there were slight rustling noises among the small pines to one side of them. At noon, they were back within a couple of miles of camp. In the high, bright sunlight, their fears seemed absurd to the two armed men, accustomed as they were through long years of lonely wandering in the wilderness to face every kind of danger from man, brute, or element. There were still three beaver traps to collect from a little pond in a wide ravine nearby. Bauman volunteered to gather these and bring them in, while his companion went ahead to camp and made ready the packs. On reaching the pond, Bauman found three beavers in the traps, one of which had been pulled loose and carried into a beaver house. He took several hours in securing and preparing the beaver, and when he started homewards he marked with some uneasiness how low the sun was getting. As he hurried toward camp under the tall trees, the silence and desolation of the forest waited on him. His feet made no sound on the pine needles and the slanting sun rays, striking through among the straight trunks made a gray twilight in which objects at a distance glimmered indistinctly. There was nothing to break the gloomy stillness which, when there is no breeze, always broods over these somber, primeval forests. At last he came to the edge of the little glade where the camp lay, and shouted as he approached it, but got no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thin blue smoke was still curling upwards. Near it lay the packs, wrapped and arranged. At first Bauman could see nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. Stepping forward, he again shouted, and as he did so, his eye fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing towards it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in the throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature printed deep in the soft soil told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While thus waiting, his monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking in the woods, waiting for a chance to catch one of the adventurers unprepared, came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps, and seemingly still on two legs. Evidently unheard, it reached the man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with its forepaws, 
while it buried its teeth in his throat. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and gambolled around it in uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it, and then had fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Bauman, utterly unnerved and believing that the creature with which he had to deal was something either half-human or half-devil, some great goblin beast, abandoned everything but his rifle and struck off at speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows where the hobbled ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night until beyond reach of pursuit. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there. <laughs>